0: One thing that happened to me that was magic was I was leaving. I was sitting in the hotel lobby, right? And the voice said, what do you see? Look around. And I looked around, and I saw people of all colors and shapes. And the voice said, do you see any niggas? I said, no. I said, you know why? Because there aren't any. Because <laughs> I'd been there three weeks. I hadn't said it. And it started making me cry, man. I said, holy shit. All the acts I've been doing and as an artist, a comedian, and the speaking and trying to say something, and I've been saying that, and that's a devastating fucking word. That has nothing to do with us. Like We are from a place where they first started people. In Africa. Right? I mean, in Kenya, I mean, Dr. Leakey, a white anthropologist, I have to say that so the white people believe him. Oh, that could be true, white <laughs> I mean, he found remains of man five million years ago that stood up and walked on earth. You know that motherfucker didn't speak French.
1: Richard Leakey has died. The famed anthropologist, whose discoveries helped prove mankind began in Africa, was 77 years old. Leakey was also a conservationist, leading the charge to try to wipe out the poaching of African elephants and rhinos, although his methods were often considered controversial. And Pierce Jackie Northam has this remembrance.
2: It was probably inevitable that Richard Leakey would make a career of fossil hunting. He was born in Nairobi in 1944, the second of three sons to the renowned paleoanthropologists Lewis and Mary Leakey. Still, when he was younger, Leakey chafed at the idea of following in his parents' footsteps. Instead, he became a safari guide. But he soon tired of that, and in his early twenties found himself on digs in remote parts of Kenya, He described what it was like on NPR's Science Friday program in 2011.
3: It's really like visiting a a new zoo. Every day you go out, you find things that you haven't seen before. You intellectually peaked practically throughout the day. And so there's nothing in a day that doesn't give you some form of satisfaction, even though it may be
2: tough. In 1984, Leakey and his team struck gold, uncovering a Homo erectus skeleton of a young boy. Carol Ward is a paleoanthropologist at the University of Missouri and longtime friend of Leakey. She says the skeleton, dubbed the Turkana boy, provided a clear window into the evolutionary past. The Takano boy is an amazing specimen. He lived a million and a half years ago. And the remarkable things about him is the skeleton is nearly complete, which is exceptionally rare in the fossil record, especially in eastern Africa. Ward says Leakey had a gift for seeing the big picture for logistics how to find the fossils, and how to expand the number of researchers, particularly Kenyans. One of the things that was especially important to him was his passion for his home country of Kenya. And he recognized that Kenyans needed to own the evidence of their prehistory. This needed to be a Kenyan endeavor, not foreigners coming in, finding fossils and objects, taking them away. Ward says Leakey was politically savvy and well-connected. His influence led to the creation of the National Museums of Kenya, the country's central repository of fossils. When his interest turned to conservation, Leakey's power made him a leader in the fight against wildlife poaching. He single-handedly prevented elephants in Africa from going extinct. That's what a lot of people believe. Paula Kahumbu knew Leakey for about 50 years and has been running his charity, Wildlife Direct, in Nairobi for more than a decade. She says Leakey was passionate about wiping out the illegal trade in ivory and rhino horns. Some of his efforts were controversial, setting fire to 12 tons of illegal ivory and arming game wardens to confront poachers. Kahumbu says Leakey was a man of exacting standards. He was a visionary and he was a person who stood for integrity. And excellent and anybody who wasn't clean or didn't work hard would come under his crosshairs. Some people did find him controversial because he felt he had very important work to do and he didn't suffer fools gladly. Kahumbu says despite losing his legs in a car crash in nineteen ninety three and increasing illness in his later years, Leaky continued to be active taking up politics at one point, creating the Turkana Basin Institute to carry on his archaeological work, and more recently, making wine from grapes grown at the equator. Jackie Northam, NPR News.
4: I kind of thought maybe it was just a publicity stunt of some sort, but um, I could not have been more wrong when I saw the results of his CTE.
5: Uh, The most significant that this, for an individual who was only 27 at the time that he died, he had a very advanced disease. And not only was it advanced microscopically, uh, especially in the frontal lobes, which are very important for uh, decision-making, judgment, and cognition, this would be the first case we've ever seen of that kind of damage in such a young individual.
4: And I didn't know too, too much about CTE, but I started to look at the signs and symptoms or the effects of CTE, impulsiveness, you know, rash decisions, sometimes propensity to be violent. I mean, it was Aaron Hernandez. And if you look at everything that this young man had going on, not only physically, um, but mentally, emotionally, um, from what had happened to him as a child and from what he'd been dealing with as his own life, and then on top of it, you add the CTE, it all made sense that um, this tragedy you know had probably begun or the seeds of this tragedy had started many, many years earlier.
5: I can say that this is substantial damage that undoubtedly took years to develop. This is not something that's developed acutely or in just in the last several years. I imagine these changes had been evolving over maybe even as long as a decade.
6: I think CTE could have, in fact, been a contributing factor to what happened because I know Aaron's had concussions. I know I've probably given him personally one or two myself. He's told me about one I gave to him after the game celebrating, just smacking his head. I knew Aaron Hernandez from (laughs) Bristol, Connecticut, an All-American. And to think that
7: this is a game that we encourage young people to play and the end result was that,
8: I'm conflicted. I really am. In 1848, Phineas Gage was working in railway construction when he suffered a brain injury.
9: Before the accident, he was personable, well-mannered, great with people. That's
8: James Goodwin, who writes about Phineas Gage in his book, Supercharge Your Brain. An iron bar tore through Gage's left cheek. Now, he survived, but he was never the same.
9: After the accident, he became irascible, profane argumentative and uh, aggressive and his doctor came to the conclusion that in fact these changes had been the result of the loss of brain tissue.
8: It's a case that James Goodwin says changed our understanding of the brain. Now I asked him for his advice for anyone who might experience brain trauma.
9: I think the first thing I would say is take all possible steps to avoid blows to the head. You show me a case of concussion and I will show you a damaged brain. Now over the years these Points of damage may be very small. I remember my father was a boxer. He eventually got dementia, and when they did a scan of his brain, there were hundreds of little tiny white marks in the grey matter. They were the scars from the many injuries from blows to the head. So you need to remember if you're in a high-risk profession or occupation that every blow to the head is going to build up over time. Some people can get away with it, but the general rule is you show me a concussion, I will show you a change in personality. It might be small, but it will be there. But for a
8: professional athlete, James, or or a police officer, or a or someone that uh, is saving lives,
9: that might be part of the job. They, they they can't stop their work. Then in that case, you've got to do everything else possible to maintain the health of your brain, because the brain is fairly resilient. I don't want to paint a black picture here, so that it can sustain levels of damage, but if you keep it in tip-top condition. And you follow all the rules about brain health and you stand a much better chance of getting through this without those injuries having an effect.
8: What are some of those rules to keeping uh, your brain tipped up? My, I remember my, my dad used to do a crossword puzzle every single day and he was convinced, James, convinced that doing a crossword puzzle in pen every day from the newspaper would keep his brain sharp. Was he
9: just uh, imagining that? Well, the brain game industry has convinced a lot of people, the same as your father. What I would say is that it, it raises the level of arousal in the brain. It's rewarding and highly satisfying, and both those will contribute to good brain health. But actually, there are other activities which are better. We call them cognitive stimulating activities. All of them have one thing in common, and that is you learn something new. If you're on an old game or a crossword And you're in the comfort zone and nothing's changing very much, then that won't have the same effect as if you're learning new things.
8: Or maybe getting better at something, too, because it sounds like that stimulates the brain, getting better at something.
9: Actually, you're absolutely right. It's the progress that you make that uh, protects the brain because it makes the brain develop new connections, what we call synapses. And as long as you're doing that, it's going to rejuvenate the brain. I've got to call my dad immediately after this interview, James, and tell him to put his
8: pen down. How about oral hygiene? Because I don't know if many people will make that connection
9: between oral hygiene and brain maintenance. Oh, that's a really important question. What we know is that one of the big sites of inflammation in the body is the mouth. That's because there are huge numbers of bacteria in there. We're constantly putting food into the mouth, and that generates levels of inflammation. That inflammation is the enemy of good brain health. And we also know that there's certain uh, bacteria in the in the mouth which can actually migrate to the brain, and we find this in dementia patients. So although it sounds unusual, good dental hygiene is highly protective to the brain. You know, James,
8: you wrote the book, Supercharge Your Brain. Uh, what do you do uh, on a personal level to try and
9: keep your brain sharp? I bear one principle in mind, I try and keep my inflammation levels down. Uh, if I took the blood of an 18-year-old and measured all the inflammatory chemicals in there, things like uh, interleukin-6, uh, CRP, other molecules, they'd be low, he's young. The body can cope with all the things that we do that are not necessarily good for the brain. But by the time you get to my age, and I'm in my 70s now, all my inflammatory molecules would be quite high in, in my blood. So I exercise five days a week. I make sure that I only eat regularly at certain times. Eating and drinking at all hours of the day and night is not a good thing. The brain needs a rest and the body needs a rest. I I make sure I have a a, a great social life. If you're lonely, it's as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and drinking a bottle of vodka. And it also is a a good predictor of dementia. So I make sure that I've got good social contacts. And then the last one would be uh, I manage my stress levels. But
8: managing our stress and, and avoiding loneliness, I mean, those are two things that in the last couple of years, Professor, have been put to the test with Covid, uh, billions and billions of human beings have gone through this collective trauma of Covid for two years now. I mean, what, what's being studied? What's being talked about in terms of what this time may have been doing to our brains?
9: Well, the first thing I'd like to say, if I wanted to devise a plan to damage the health of the nation, I'd go for lockdown. It's enormously damaging. It may flatten the curve on Covid, but the downside of lockdown is uh, is huge. It means we take less exercise. It means that we eat less well. It means that we have less access to medical care. It means that we don't see people. All of these things are big negatives as far as uh, brain health is concerned. Is that something that maybe was unavoidable, though, you know, considering what we didn't know about COVID at the start? I think that's a fair point to make. So to counter that, what I would say was do everything you possibly can if you're restricted in your social activities to maintain contact with other people. Our social nature has evolved in the brain over 1.5 million years of evolution. Soon as you start interfering with that interaction with other people, uh, it's going to be damaging to the brain. Phone people, get on Zoom, write people letters, talk over the garden fence, do anything you can to maintain your social life. It's hugely important.
8: Professor James Goodwin, Director of Science and Research Impact, a Brain Health Network, and author of Supercharger Brain, How to Maintain a Healthy Brain Throughout Your Life.
9: Thank you uh, very much, Professor. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure uh, to be with you and to be with your listeners.
10: The Olympics got underway. Simone Biles was like, hey, I ain't okay. Take care of your mental space.
5: On a rainy day in downtown New Orleans, photographer Matthew Seltzer walks down a busy street as people come in and out of shops and cafes.
11: Yeah, I like people that are being themselves, being true and authentic. I do love dogs also. (laughs)
5: Um. When COVID hit in 2020, Seltzer lost his day job. Then his grandfather passed away. He was overcome with anxiety, depression, and feelings of isolation. He sought relief and connection behind the lens of his camera, snapping photos to capture the charm of the Crescent City.
11: For those brief seconds, life felt normal but you could tell everybody was still struggling and the weight of the pandemic was heavy.
5: Seltzer also tried to get help from a therapist. Demand was so high though, he couldn't find one. He turned to online resources, YouTube videos, and eventually called a mental health hotline.
11: You know, I felt awkward with it, like out of my comfort zone, but I feel like a lot of it does help for people that need someone to talk to, you know, right away.
5: Data acquired from mental health and crisis hotlines in Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama show that lots of people have sought this type of help. Calls to hotlines have been on the rise over the last five years and skyrocketed during the pandemic. One national hotline saw an increase of 23 percent in average monthly calls, between 2020 and 2021.
12: It's a lot higher of a volume of intensity to the phone calls.
5: Sherrod Crespo is a clinical supervisor at ViaLink, a nonprofit in New Orleans, which runs a handful of phone, text and email hotlines, including one that popped up during the pandemic called Keep Calm. She says attitudes around mental health were already shifting before the pandemic, But during COVID-19, People hit their breaking point
12: where they were like, I'm not gonna be stoic anymore. I need to talk about what I'm going through. I'm freaking out.
5: These hotlines don't provide therapy, but can help point people to more long-term solutions. And the types of solutions people need now aren't just emotional relief, but housing, food, and safety.
12: Since COVID and then these natural disasters that keep happening and the financial effects and the physical effects of the illness, there's a lot more intense need. States
5: like Alabama and Mississippi are among the last in the nation for the number of mental health providers per capita. So there are a lot of tools popping up to fill the gap. New Orleans Public Television launched a weekly show called Coping During the COVID Crisis, co-hosted by Roy Salgado.
0: We're we're anxious and it's okay.
5: Salgado is a mental health counselor at the University of Holy Cross in New Orleans. The goal of the show is to provide mass therapy for a range of emotional issues people have had during the pandemic, from anxiety to concerns over socializing again.
11: Every mental health provider that I know, every single one that I know has a waiting list. This show offers people an opportunity to acquire skills and coping skills that perhaps goes out to more people. Instead of touching one individual, one couple or one family at a time.
5: The show has gone from a limited series into multiple seasons because people want it. Salgado says one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people are taking their mental health more seriously.
11: Yes, we have these needs, we have these deficits, but not all of it is negative. We have our strengths. We have learned that we are adaptable as a species of people and that we are resilient.
5: And he hopes the resources we're developing now can stick around when the memories of lockdowns and mask mandates fade. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina
13: now.
14: Well, the mental stress of the pandemic is driving some working moms to drink. During COVID, drinking among women reached record highs with heavy drinking episodes increasing 41% That's according to research firm, The Rand Company. So should this rise in drinking be cause for concern? Well, joining us now with more insight on this issue is Loyola Marymount University professor, therapist and race scholar, Maya Hoskin. Thanks so much for joining us, Maya. Happy New Year. Um, Tell us, do you think this pandemic is taking such a toll on women that this could be a very serious problem moving forward in the long term?
15: Absolutely. And thank you for having me and happy new year to you as well. Uh, But yeah, definitely um, this trend or phenomenon has playfully been coined the mommy juice culture, but it's definitely cause for concern. Um, We know that there were already increases in alcohol consumption among women prior to the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, It just really added insult to injury and exacerbated the current issue. Um, A recent study released that there is a 323% increase in alcohol consumption among women uh, with children under the age of five during the pandemic. And so we know that women are more at risk and more vulnerable to increased alcohol consumption as compared to men um, as a result of the pandemic and then the lasting effects of the pandemic. So it's definitely a cause for concern.
14: Yeah, I mean, with our culture, let's face it, drinking can be, you know, something that's accepted and and considered, you know, beneficial in some cases. And it's a Mm -hmm. cultural issue that we actually saw come up. During an episode of Sex and the City, the spinoff, and just like that, I don't know if you've seen it yet, uh, one of the characters Mm -hmm. realizing that she's drinking more than usual. And we know, especially Sex and the City, that's a big part of their, their socializing is going out and having a drink there in New York City. So what do you think you should do if you notice a change in your behavior like they pointed out in the movie?
15: Absolutely. I think it's important to note the distinction between social drinking here and there when you're out with your friends or a group of people celebration versus drinking in isolation by yourself at home consistently. Um, And that is when we see substance abuse disorder it could develop, right? And, and create a, a problem for a person is when they're drinking alone at home. Um, and so, within that, again, one of the main issues or one of the main giveaways or telltale signs that this might be a problem is when a person finds themselves um, engaging in substance by themselves, no longer uh, social for social gatherings or at social gatherings. Also, when that consumption begins to increase, when a person doesn't feel de-stressed with just one drink. Um, They can, they need, Two drinks, three drinks, four drinks, or they find that when they um, are not able to have an alcoholic beverage or consume alcohol, uh, they're experiencing cer- certain withdrawal symptoms: frustration, agitation, irritation, um, or even physical symptoms such as heart palpitations, sweating. And so, those are some of the telltale symptoms. Also, excessive money—you know, a lot of money being spent on alcohol use—and and then also when you begin to hide. And that's one of the telltale signs, really hiding the use of alcohol consumption um, or substance from your loved ones, from your family for fear of judgment. Um, that's typically a, a real dead giveaway that there might be a problem going on, which in Sex and the City, the, the reboot for Sex and the City, Miranda, was dealing with, you know, uh, Charlotte finding, you know, empty alcohol wine bottles being hidden. And that's typically one of the telltale signs.
2: Yeah,
14: exactly. So. With that, do we see, does this also come with a spike in alcohol addiction or is this you think something short term and after, you know, hopefully after the pandemic passes that people return to normal or does this turn into alcohol addiction?
15: Absolutely. And as I mentioned, we were already beginning to see an increase or a spike in alcohol consumption among women prior to the pandemic. Um, as a matter of fact, in 2019 um, over there was an over 80 percent increase of alcohol consumption among women and I should say an over 80 percent increase in alcohol addiction among women compared to just about a 30 percent increase of alcohol addiction among men and so this is again it's 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 cause for concern not only in terms of consumption but actually informing addiction and you know a lot of women as you've said earlier laverne really dealt with uh, various factors during the pandemic that exacerbated um, any type of substance abuse and alcohol use, such as being a stay-at-home moms, as well as balancing their work life, um, being uh, anxious about uncertain uh, conditions in our country, health concerns, and then just the overall effects of being isolated um, for a prolonged period of time. So women, it's, it's definitely a cost for concern and it's great that we're having this discussion right now about it.
14: So Maya, real quick before I let you go, um, is there any advice or tips that you can give somebody who thinks they're struggling or should they just go ahead and try to reach out to AA or somewhere professional? Is it something that they can get a hold
15: of, get control of on their own? Well, I think it really depends on where a person falls on that spectrum. If they just started engaging in alcohol use or substance abuse, or if they have a much more deeply rooted issue. But overall, what I would suggest is number one, we need to readjust our perception or the profile of substance abuse. folks who fall into that category. When we think about alcoholism or substance abuse overall, we think about men or wayward women, and that is not at all or never has been the only profile. And so we need to kind of correct our, our thinking around that. You know, As we we're saying, we're seeing a lot of women, particularly younger women with um, younger children who are fitting the profile and who are developing a substance abuse disorder. Um, so we first need to readjust that um, perception because I think a lot of women are kind of minimizing or dismissing their drinking because they think they don't fit the profile. So that's the first piece. But then the second piece is um, talking to your loved ones, those that, who you really trust um, and who can give you support and can give you an objective opinion about if your your consumption of alcohol or substance is getting a little erratic. And then obviously, you know, for those more extreme situations, definitely looking into resources such as you know twelve step programs, um, and then trying to wean yourself off of that substance. Um, you know. it's the beginning of the new year and we always hear about dry January or dry February. So trying to go 30 to 60 days without consuming alcohol or consuming a specific substance. But another really great resource for anyone who might be concerned about a potential disorder or developing a potential disorder would be to look into the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, On their website, they have a wealth of resources and information in terms of symptoms to look out for, um, different resources in terms of programs um, that a person can enroll themselves in.
14: Well, great advice. Thank you so much. Uh, the bottom line is, you're not alone, and there is help
8: out there. Thank you yeah. so much, Maya, for joining yeah. us. Take care.
0: Covid, Covid, pandemic, Covid, Covid, Covid.
8: Some people who received the COVID vaccine have reported changes to their menstrual cycle. NPR's Jeff Brumfield says scientists are asking why.
11: Clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines looked for side effects like sore arms, but one thing they didn't check for was changes to the menstrual cycle.
16: The menstrual cycle is like the, you know, stepsister that gets ignored.
11: Allison Edelman is an OBGYN at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. It's considered
16: unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but it actually is really important to people day to day.
11: When it came to getting vaccinated against COVID, many people did notice changes to their menstrual cycle. And because those changes were never studied in the clinical trials, they sometimes became the basis for conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines. Now it's known that vaccination is safe for those who are pregnant, but Edelman still wanted to check on menstruation because it affects so many people every month. So she took data from a popular app people use to track their menstrual cycles and sure enough she found a minor shift.
16: What we found is that in individuals who were vaccinated versus individuals that not, we see a less than 1 day change in their menstrual cycle length with vaccination.
11: In other words, people experienced on average a slightly longer time between bleeding around their first and second dose. The results appear in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology, and Edelman is now following up on other changes like heavier flows. She stresses there's no evidence any of this should be worrying.
16: We have not seen anything that's concerning regard to fertility or pregnancy in terms of vaccination. And in fact, the risk of COVID-19 disease in pregnant women is incredibly serious.
11: She seen pregnant women end up in intensive care because they're not vaccinated. Still, Edelman thinks that changes to menstruation probably should be added as a possible minor side effect to the vaccines, along with headaches and sore arms. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
6: With um the flint and how the the black male said that um we could have lost an entire um generation to um the lead poisoning and um I would say, uh, yeah, I'm certain uh, we have lost an entire generation to um, that, that uh, chemical um, warfare um, that is the Flint, Michigan um, disaster, terrorist attack. Incidentally, uh, the terrorism with the
17: water. Now, that data also happened in Flint, Michigan and Newark, New Jersey. Those are just places that we know about. I'm sure a number of other regions as well. That's part of the uh, infrastructure package that is having all that difficult time. The report we heard was about Benton Harbor, which is also in Michigan, not Flint, Michigan. Totally different area, which also happens to have a significant population of black people who are suffering with this problem and may have a so-called lost generation uh, of children uh, as a result of chemical, biological warfare. But yeah, two different
18: regions. They say don't drink the water, we need it for the fires.
7: Finally tonight, we have the story of volunteers making a difference in a small Michigan city that's facing a crisis that began in 2018 when reports of lead exposure from water pipes surfaced. Replacing the pipes in Benton Harbor, Michigan, is an ongoing project and residents are still being told not to drink water from their taps. The Environmental Protection Agency says there is no safe level of lead in drinking water because the toxic metal, quote, can be harmful to human health, even at low exposure levels. The government is providing free bottled water, but getting the thousands of bottles into homes every day is not easy. And now volunteers are stepping up to meet the need. Donnell Kyle is on a mission.
13: I'm a Marine. They say once a Marine, always a Marine. So I I did serve in Desert Storm, Desert Shield. So I'm used to volunteering and, and, and doing things for my community.
7: Kyle, a former Marine, is part of a team from Greater Community Christian Fellowship Church, delivering cases of bottled water in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Like Flint before it, Benton Harbor is in the midst of a water crisis. The water flowing through the city's pipes and into homes is not safe to consume because of a possible risk of lead exposure. There are just more than 9,000 residents in this small community, most of them African-American. More than 40% live below the poverty line.
13: It just seems like it's always this situation is in the community where it's poverty. And we have this crisis going on where... It's very unfair that that is happening in our
7: community. Water is available to be picked up at specific locations, but not all residents have transportation, and some are unable to leave their homes. So Kyle and his team deliver six days a week.
13: To your right, just a little bit.
7: They load a rented van with two skids of water totaling 168 cases for each trip. The team works for six hours, making three runs and delivering almost 600 cases of water. Some homes get just a few cases. Some get as many as two dozen, depending on how many residents are at each location and their needs. Their goal is to keep Benton Harbor's residents safe. Recent testing has shown that lead levels have dropped somewhat, but residents are still advised to use bottled water for drinking and cooking.
13: And we all doing our part to make sure that that everyone um, get what they need, that they get this water.
7: Meanwhile, the state of Michigan has called for the replacement of Benton Harbor's lead water service lines within 18 months at a cost of nearly $30 million. Until then, Donnell Kyle will see his mission through.
13: We're in it for the long haul,
7: and everybody
13: in the community is banding together. We're going to continue to deliver water, however long it takes. If it takes five years, ten years. We we're in it. We're in it. We're in it to to get this water out to our community.
8: This the city of Chicago.
3: Chicago. Chicago.
8: Bobby Rush is leaving Congress. The longtime representative from Southside Chicago is ending a chapter in a life that's seen military service, the fight for civil rights with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Illinois Black Panther Party, and also elected of office as city alderman and congressman. The only person to defeat Barack Obama at the ballot box during a primary in 2000 says he's not retiring but returning. My best
19: self is in my expression of service to others. My love language is service. That's who I am. I spoke
8: with Bobby Rush yesterday and asked him about a talk he had with his 19-year-old grandson that had him rethinking his work on Capitol Hill.
19: To have your grandson saying that, you know, you're not accessible to him because you are really doing important work. But there's no more work that's more important than having the right relationship with your grandchildren and with this younger generation. I don't want my grandchildren uh, to know me from a history book, from a a media outlet. I want them to know me personally, the sound of my voice, my inflections of my voice. You know, I just have some... A lot of shared experiences, so that they can pass it on to their children and their great grandchildren. Uh,
8: now, you were very clear, though, uh, in saying that this is not a retirement. You mentioned your church, beloved Community Church of God in Christ, in Chicago, the South Side of Chicago. Uh, when it comes to remaining on the front lines of your community, what's that going to look like for you?
19: You know, I am. I'm looking forward to, and frankly, I'm excited about. Going into the gangways and the hallways and, the, and, and on the streets, you know, when young people hang out and where they live. I want to go in there and try to inspire them and show them the way uh, to take advantage of some of the opportunities that exist in our nation. Back
8: in 1968, Congressman, you co-founded the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And back then, um, you know, many Americans saw your group as terrorists. Now, today we have uh, more sympathetic portraits, uh, such as the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Congressman, do you think that there is a greater sense of understanding, perhaps even a validation now for what you were trying to do back then?
19: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We engage in what we call survival programs. Uh, And those programs included the free breakfast for children program, uh, free medical clinics around the nation. Obamacare is one variation of the uh, free health clinics. We have qualified health clinics now who, under Obamacare, are getting billions of dollars to provide health care and health centers located in the same neighborhoods that the Panther Party was trying to organize. School lunch programs now, they're a necessary item right now. It's schools all across the nation, not just in black communities, but poor communities all across this nation. Uh, we got a long way to go, and we have a short time to get there. So on January 6th, the day of the anniversary of the attack on our democracy, I can only say that we still have a long way to go and a very short time to get there. As a matter of fact, if we don't get it done in the next two years, then I think that we are going to really be uh, in a, a very difficult, difficult
8: place. Congressman, what did you think of what the president and vice president said at the Capitol to mark the anniversary of the insurrection? There, what stood out to you the most? The vice president and
19: certainly the president gave every freedom-loving, justice-seeking, democracy-believing uh, 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 American citizen So real, a real clear, precise potent picture of where we have to go as a nation he did not try to dilute it he didn't try to paint a wonderful picture he gave us the real deal he gave us the truth and i am one who believes if you know the truth then the truth ought to set you free when
8: it comes to protecting that democracy, Congressman, what do you think Congress should do? What what can be done? What's the number one thing? What would be top on, on your wish list to, to be done?
19: I think the uh, the Voting Rights Bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Immediately, that should be passed. That is the one thing that uh, that uh, the U.S. government that the U.S. Congress can do to protect the right to vote for all American citizens in every state of the Union. We have got to pass that bill. That would mean almost as important to our democracy as the Emancipation
8: Proclamation. You both stressed uh, the importance of the Voting Rights Act and both also alluded to the importance of the midterms that are coming up. Uh, Congressman, do you think uh, that January 6th, as the president uh, said, could possibly mark a renaissance for democracy?
19: Well, I believe that he voiced it. It should be a turning point. But again, there's a lot of work to be done. We have got to change the hearts of so many people, and that takes more than a 15- or 20-minute speech on television. I don't think that the president, he did not wave a magic wand. He called us to action. I intend to be on the front line in the think of this pursuit of this effort to protect our democratic form of government, protect our democracy.
8: Bobby Rush has represented the first congressional district in Illinois for nearly 30 years. Congressman,
19: thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you so very much. I really enjoyed being with you.
10: Up. First,
13: black crazy.
20: twelve months after a pro Trump mob stormed the capitol to stop the certification of the two thousand and twenty presidential election, evidence continues to point toward a future of greater political violence in the u s. Now, a new survey from the University of Chicago suggests that as many as 21 million adults sympathize with the rioters. And Pierre Zodette Youssef covers domestic extremism. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, how is this movement described in the study?
21: Well, Adi, the 21 million sits at the Venn diagram intersection of two beliefs. First, the lie that the election was stolen and that President Biden is an illegitimate president. And second, that using force to restore former President Trump to the White House is justified. And this study from the Chicago Project on Security and Threats and the National Opinion Research Center calls this population the American insurrectionist movement. And does it detail
20: the demographics of the movement?
21: Yeah, the profile of the average person here is that they're a late millennial or Gen Xer living in an urban or suburban place where their political and ideological beliefs aren't popular and who may kind of feel under siege. But what really separates them, Adi, from the rest of the body politic in the U.S. is that they appear to believe in a conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement. This is the University of Chicago's Robert Pape.
22: They are very concerned about the idea that the rights of whites are being overtaken by the rights of minorities or that the Democratic Party is deliberately bringing in immigrants in order to change the demographics in the country deliberately to disenfranchise the current conservative voters.
21: You know, Adi, the great replacement conspiracy theory has existed on the fringe for years, but now we're seeing it increasingly in mainstream American discourse. How
20: mainstream and what are the implications of that?
21: Well, you know, Pape says the implications are that when there's widespread mainstream support for an insurrectionist movement, you can see people less likely to inform authorities of violence before it happens, um, that the pool of potentially violent actors is larger, and that those actors may in fact feel that they have a mandate for violence. And most notably, he says that community support is often an element that's seen in the early in the trajectories of countries that have descended into political and ideological violence.
22: With Northern Ireland, for instance, in 1968, 13% of Catholics believe violence was legitimate for their political causes. And it was a year later that the provisional IRA emerged, which then carried out several decades-long terrorist campaign.
21: Now, we don't have too many data points on this in Western democracy, but Pape says it's important to be aware of how those trajectories played
20: out. And how does this shape your understanding of last year's riot at the Capitol?
21: Well, it's clear that time has not corrected the false narrative of the big lie and that we live in an America with a deeply divided understanding of what happened on January 6th and whether or not it was right. But, Adi, I think of particular concern is that we're seeing the same doubts planted already about the results of the upcoming midterm elections. So, you know, tremendous concern that we have this population that Pape describes as dry kindling for a wildfire ready to ignite with the smallest
20: spark. That's NPR Zodat Youssef. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you.
1: The stars at night are big and bright. <laughs> Deep in the
23: this week marks one year since the insurrection at the United States Capitol. Over the next few days, we are going to be examining what happened last January 6, as well as the misinformation, extremism and political divisions that contributed to the attack and continue to plague the nation to this day. William Brangham begins our coverage. He recently traveled to one part of the country that produced an outsized number of people charged in the Capitol riots, and heard from others in that community who are still trying to understand the forces that propelled their neighbors to the siege.
24: Any other patriots on the fence about joining us in D.C. Don't think, just do. They have reached. Up onto the terrace of the Capitol.
25: As TV screens showed the destruction and chaos at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, real estate agent Hava Johnston watched it all unfold on social media from her house in Frisco, Texas, as one Facebook friend after another posted from the Capitol.
24: Then, when I started not only just recognizing names, but faces and people that I've known for a long time.
25: JOHNSTON WORKED IN THE SAME CIRCLES AS JENNA RYAN, THE NOTORIOUS REALTOR WHO WENT TO D.C. ON A PRIVATE JET AND LIVE-STREAMED ON FACEBOOK THROUGHOUT THE RIOT.
26: THEY SAID SOMEBODY IN THERE IS LIKE SHOT IN THE FACE. I DON'T CARE. SHOOT ME IN THE FACE.
24: THERE'S WONDERFUL JENNA RYAN. THAT'S THE FRISCO REALTOR.
25: JOHNSTON HAD ALSO BEEN FRIENDS SINCE HIGH SCHOOL WITH ANOTHER LOCAL REALTOR WHO FLEW TO D.C. WITH JENNA RYAN.
24: THESE WERE NEIGHBORS a lot of them from right here in North Texas. We hang out together, we would go to happy hours together. It was shocking, but then when I took a step back and I started thinking a little bit more about who that person was, it was less surprising. I think that there is a certain section of these people that became emboldened and they feel righteous. And I believe that he is one of those that got swept up in that.
25: This region was an epicenter for people who went to the Capitol on January 6th. The Dallas FBI field office has arrested 35 people for their role in that day's events. That's among the highest numbers of any field office in the country. When you saw that a lot of people in this region were being nabbed by the authorities for January 6th, did that surprise
27: you? No, it didn't. It didn't really surprise me. We have seen a pretty dramatic change and shift over the last five years. I think that... (laughs) Politicians, um, you know, somehow keyed into the idea that divisiveness and demonizing the other side created um, more more of a frenzy.
25: How are you? George Fuller is the mayor of the North Texas city of McKinney. He's pushed back on the various lies and conspiracies that animated so many people here to go to the Capitol. The main one, the repeatedly debunked fantasy that Donald Trump won the election.
27: I'm here to tell you, as a Republican, the election wasn't stolen. Republicans lost the presidency. And is that in, a fraught thing for
25: you to say aloud in front of a camera?
27: Oh, I'm, I will. Yeah, I'm, I will catch a tremendous amount <laughs> of grief for that.
25: The mayor says it's not just the election. He's had to push back on all kinds of conspiracies in his community and even within his own family.
27: You know, I have one sister that. Um, The fact that I was engaged in setting up a mega vaccination center, I was part of the deep state. I I am, am, you know, I'm injecting people with, with tracking chips. I said, for you to be right, I have to be part of this conspiracy. And her response was, yeah, you are. You must be. You know, I say it with a smile, but it's actually very sad. I was very close to my sister. But she finds, you know, she spends her time in in the in the deep black holes of the internet and and finds all kinds of things that convince her she's she's right and
25: these things are real. Those black holes and different realities are expanding as fast as these North Texas suburbs. As you see around me, this area is going through a housing boom. According to the U.S. Census, the city of Frisco, Texas, was the fastest-growing city in all of America over the last 10 years. And as this region grows, the demographics are shifting as well. This local county dropped from 63 percent white population down to 51 percent in that same time period. Debbie teaches at a local public school. She asked that we only use her first name. She says, given the current atmosphere, she does not want to trigger any more anger. She's lived in this area for over 40 years, and she's seen some backlash to its rapid transformation.
28: We saw language about, you know, keep Plano suburban and, you know, keep away the apartments. I mean, that's, that's a dog whistle, right? It's against diversity of people, of, of socioeconomics. It's just another culture war. Others
25: point out that nativist and, at times, violent rhetoric is also coming from the pulpits of some of the Christian evangelical churches in this area, like Brandon Burden, pastor of Kingdom Life Church, who told his congregants on January 10th, it was God's will for Trump to stay in office and told them to keep their guns loaded. Debbie saw similar inflamed talk in the schools, in increasingly heated fights over mask mandates, so called critical race theory, and growing calls for banning books.
28: We started the school year with tons of people showing up with signs and screaming with horrible things on their t shirts and on these signs. And it's terrifying. Um, They harass people.
25: Last year, Sodov Hawk was the target of that kind of harassment. Her family is one of the many who moved to Frisco for the growing economic opportunities, but when she ran for city council in 2020, she saw an ugliness laying below Frisco's shining surface.
12: During my campaign, I started to face a lot of hate. Misinformation, just brainwashing, the attacks that I got from you know, different extremist groups trying to paint me as anti-Semitic, trying to paint me as, you know, just anti-anti-police, you know, um, anti-American. Even at the polls, I was yelled at. I was spit at.
28: Huck
25: lost her race, and now says if she knew the extent of the xenophobia that would bubble out of some of her neighbors, she would have thought twice before running.
12: I think if I had seen what went down. On January sixth, if I had forecasted everything that happened leading up to November, I wouldn't have. Really? I wouldn't have.
25: It's a paradox. This region's booming development is quite literally built from the ground up and maintained by an influx of non-white residents and immigrants. They do uh, construction work. Uh, they do cleaning houses and. Roofing, electricians, everything to do with the building of a house. Alex Camacho is a longtime pastor in McKinney and also a lawyer who helps immigrants work through the legal process. He says what he saw on January 6th turned his stomach. For us, the American flag is a symbol of respect. When we
10: become citizens, we place allegiance to the flag. But now that we see him, these rioters are uh, using the flag as a symbol and screaming and attacking people and destroying
25: property of the government in Washington. Uh, we kind of, you know, is that the, the purpose of the flag? Meanwhile, rioters like Jenna Ryan seemed to revel in their white privilege. She said, Sorry, I have blonde hair, white skin, a great job, a great future, and I'm not going to jail. In fact, Ryan reported to prison right before Christmas for a 60 day sentence. Another January 6th rioter from North Texas, Mark Middleton, charged with assaulting D.C. police officers, is now running for a seat in the Texas legislature on a platform of building Trump's border wall, gun rights and possible secession from the union. And the big lie conspiracies continue. This county is one of four in Texas, where officials have launched more audits of the 2020 election. Initial results released on New Year's Eve Found what all other audits have found no evidence of widespread voter fraud for those who've borne the brunt of lies and conspiracies this new year could not come soon enough
12: there was a while where I couldn't even walk in my neighborhood because I just wasn't I wasn't ready to face the world I mean I'm raising Three daughters. What kind of a world are we living in? How do we get out of it?
25: A year since the January 6th attacks, and the gulf between families, neighbors, and political parties seems wider and more unbridgeable than ever. For the PBS Newshour, I'm William Brangham in Collin County, Texas.
29: We saw with our own eyes. Riders menace these halls threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. What did we not see? We didn't see a former President who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television and doing nothing for hours.
1: It has been a year since
10: January 6th, 2021,
1: Washington, D.C. The day of a deadly attack on the Capitol after a speech by President Trump to a large crowd. For many who participated in the violence, it was a patriotic act, protesting what they had been told was a stolen election. But as arrests continue and jail sentences begin, how have the consequences reshaped that narrative? NPR's Tom Bowman and Lauren Hodges were there on January 6th and have this report. I was
29: standing with thousands of Trump supporters on the lawn rising up to the Washington Monument. Trump came on stage to raucous applause. He claimed election fraud.
30: We're leading Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, by hundreds of thousands of votes. And then late in the evening or early in the morning...
29: attack the media.
30: Boom, these explosions of bull, (laughs) And all of a sudden...
29: And vowed to go to Capitol Hill.
30: We're
0: going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol...
29: Walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, there was almost a festive air, but then I got a call from my colleagues, Hannah Alam and Lauren Hodges, who were up on Capitol Hill. They saw something far different.
31: Yeah, it's getting pretty bad. Hannah and I had kind of embedded with this group of the Proud Boys who were just starting to make their way down to the White House rally, and then suddenly they stopped in the street and began to turn around to go back to the Capitol. They must have heard Trump was coming, or at least sent a crowd our way. We looked down Pennsylvania Avenue and saw a huge stream of people, thousands coming toward us. It happened really fast. All of a sudden, Hannah and I were just surrounded by this crowd that kept getting tighter and tighter.
16: They have pushed past the barriers. they going up the steps. past the barriers. They're now going up the steps to the Capitol. Uh, it's an absolute pandemonium. It's as far back
21: as
2: the eye can see.
29: They were looking for any way in, and eventually, they succeeded.
31: We asked one of them what they were trying to accomplish.
9: What do you hope comes of all of this? The people in this house who stole this election from us, hanging from a gallow out here in this lawn for the whole world to see, so it never happens again. That's what needs to happen. Four by four by four, hanging from a rope out here for treason. You guys get on the other side?
32: Yeah, we got on the other side. They're in the tunnels right now in the dome. Who, who is? Uh, our friends.
29: On the other side of the Capitol, I met Natalie O'Brien and Chris Galcucci of Detroit.
31: People had taken their flagpoles and, and other things and were busting in the window and the other door.
29: How many people would you say got in, in the building?
31: Oh, got hundreds? I don't know.
6: Yep.
29: What brought you here?
31: Uh, the Republic falling and becoming corrupt and unmanageable and our vote not mattering at all whatsoever.
8: Because we love our country.
31: Yeah.
8: We don't want to see it fall in the hands of these evil people. The stuff that they do, it's unforgivable. But what do you think what's going on right now?
1: I think it's more of a statement
31: than anything. I think we, uh, our tax dollars pay for this monument, you know, this, this is kind of our property. Uh, we we've have no other recourse. List. Yeah, we have no other recourse.
29: So where do you take it from here? We don't know. We keep coming. We keep fighting. We keep coming.
31: Last month, news broke that Mark Meadows, Trump's then chief of staff, texted with Fox News hosts on January 6th. They were asking Trump to call off the riot. But later that same day, this was the story on Fox
24: News. Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. We'll have more on that later.
31: And that narrative spread.
29: Lauren and I went back to the Capitol grounds in September for the Justice for J6 rally. A lot of the people we spoke with had been there in the 6th, and yet they had a new story.
22: And those weren't Trump supporters. Who were they that? were all wearing, I don't know, I didn't ask them their names, but they were blacked out in gear. So they
33: were black helmets, black clothes, black backpacks who started bursting the windows first. There were some Trump supporters trying to fight them off. but. Um, Initially, what I saw was what looked like either BLM or Antifa.
31: Former President Trump has repeated that narrative that his supporters didn't instigate the violence. Here he is talking to Candace Owens on December 21st.
0: You have uh, BLM and you had uh, Antifa people. I have very little doubt about that. And they were antagonizing and they were agitating.
31: But of course, the whole
29: point of the Justice for J6 rally was to protest the treatment of those in custody and awaiting their trials for what they did that day. We know who was there.
31: So far, more than 700 people have been charged. The defendants are largely white, and 13% of them have ties to the military or law enforcement. Over 100 of them have alleged ties to known extremist or fringe organizations, such as the pro-Trump conspiracy theory QAnon, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters, a part of the anti-government militia movement. But the bulk had no ties to extremist groups. Tampa Bay attorney Bjorn Brunvand represents several people who were at the Capitol that day, including Robert Scott Palmer, who was recently sentenced to five years in prison for assaulting law enforcement officers with a fire extinguisher, a wood plank, and a flagpole. His is the longest term yet.
3: He believed in the, the lies that were being uh, professed from President Trump and, and his uh, accomplices.
31: Brunvand says the time in jail has been eye-opening for his client.
3: It was 100 percent support for President Trump and, and, and the idea that the election was fraudulent at the beginning to a recognition after he's been incarcerated that he was misled. He's sitting in a detention facility here in Washington, D.C., and this big, powerful former president, you know, who said, meet me at the Capitol. He's too busy playing golf and has no interest in any of the guys that have been arrested.
31: He says Palmer took President Trump's words that day as a directive, that he was doing this for him. And now he feels abandoned.
3: Not only did he not show up, he's not there for anyone at this point who were there and supposedly were there to save democracy and save the country. uh, When in fact they were most likely uh, doing quite the opposite.
31: But the idea of January 6th did not die with the day. The University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats has been tracking insurrectionist sentiment in the U.S. for a year now. It found that 21 million share the same beliefs that motivated rioters that day. In other words, millions of Americans support the idea of political violence. Researchers call it an American insurrectionist movement, one that, a year after the attack on the Capitol, is still alive and well. Lauren Hodges.
29: Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington.
34: When I got there, my cousin Henry was there, and he was very angry, and he was using words that let you know he was angry, too, and the lady said, wanted to know who I was, and I told her that I heard that my daughter, Denise had been, Denise McNair had been killed, and she said, oh, you're Maxine, and I got so angry with her. How dare she call me Maxine. She wasn't a friend of mine. She didn't know me from Adam. And here she's going to take the liberty of calling me by my name. I said, I'm Mrs. Chris McNair. I'm sorry. I'm sorry was her comment. But it was too late then. She'd done it. You know, that old mentality, you're nothing and I'm something, came out. Anyway, she went in and she let me go in and see her. And she said, but your husband has already identified her. But that was my privilege to... Identify my child to me. And I didn't think anybody should have taken it away from me. And I'm sure I said as much. Because by that time, I was kind of ticked off. Okay, uh, they carried me on to my mother's house. And when I got in there, I couldn't stop hollering. I couldn't stop screaming. And I can just see myself sitting in the chair, just being so upset and a place that I wanted to rub and
35: I couldn't rub it.
34: And I later found out that I was the only parent that was at church that day.
35: You know, she wasn't gonna be here long, but she just, you know, you can't imagine life without her because she's always been uh, here.
18: So we're just me and my sister holding on each other. Lisa McNair, is the daughter of Maxine McNair, and she says her mother taught in Birmingham Public Schools for 33 years and would go above and beyond for her students. She would take some
35: clothes if they were a child that didn't have clothes or good hygiene. She would take soap
18: and take things to try to help the parents. Maxine was the mother of Denise McNair, the youngest girl killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in 1963. McNair says while she was devastated by the death of her daughter, she didn't let that come between her faith in God.
35: One of her favorite scriptures was trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding and in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will
18: direct your path, which was a scripture she lived by even through her diagnosis of Alzheimer's. McNair says that didn't slow her down from doing some of her favorite things. Even when she
35: retired, there was a school behind our house and she would uh,
18: go and read to those
35: students. She was still filled with life. She was still eating up to like a couple of days ago. Her favorite thing to do all the time was eat. McNair says her mother was a strong woman
18: that touched many lives across the world.
35: Almost every month I run into somebody that said, your mom taught me and I would not be the person I am had it not been for your mom. But we're so grateful that the rest of the world got to know how wonderful she uh, was.
18: Now, public visitation for Miss McNair will be Friday from 1 to 7 at Davenport and Harris Funeral Home. And funeral arrangements have been set for Saturday at New Hope Baptist Church. Service starting at 11 a.m. and it will also be streamed online. Sherry? All
10: supporting HBCUs. So now let's
36: meet the team. Team Durant is presented to you by the illustrious, the incomparable, the best.
0: The North Carolina Central University had to evacuate campus this evening after someone called it a bomb threat.
28: NCCU says it was one of at least seven historically black colleges and universities to receive a bomb threat just
37: today. CBS 17's Galat Malamud is live on campus. Uh, Galat, have students been allowed
28: back? Angela's students are allowed back on campus right now. That bomb threat caused North Carolina Central to be on lockdown for about four hours. NCCU says the call came in around 5.30 p.m. for that bomb threat. The campus was put on lockdown and students received an emergency notification. During police blocked off entrances to campus. The university says it worked to make sure all buildings were clear before students could return safely. Junior Alyssa Lyons was bringing groceries up to her dorm when she says campus sirens went off. The text told her and others to go to nearby Hillside High School and then she received the text to go to St. Joseph AME Church
26: instead. Just to hurry up and get out. I mean, we left our stuff in there. I mean, the wallets is left in there, like my door is unlocked. So it was just to go ahead and get moving. It's a whole scary little process. I've never went through nothing like this coming here before at all.
28: Lyon says, even with everything being safe, she won't come back to campus tonight and she will be sleeping at her parents' house. The campus police chief says that they're investigating the person who called this in and he hopes they'll be prosecuted to the extent of the law. Again, students are allowed here on campus tonight. Live in Durham, Gilat Malamid, CBS 17 News. Always say better to be safe than sorry. So, Gilat, thank you. When you're a cop, you can torment freely
18: and see me valley, then season the Audi, then being
38: proudly, turn a routine traffic stop to your the finale when you're a cop, An assistant chief with the Washington State Police Department that has been suspended after flagrantly, excuse me, displaying a Nazi symbol on the job. Check out this officer. His name is Derek Camerzel. There he is, his picture right up there. This officer displaying Nazi insignia. And the crazy part about this is essentially the lengths at which he went and everything that was involved here and the outcome. Now, what we know is that Camarzel, a 27-year veteran of the department, was suspended by police chief Raphael Padilla for violating city policy prohibiting harassment discrimination and for unbecoming conduct in violation of police policy. Padilla took the action after Camarzell posted the insignia attributed to a Nazi military rank, according to a July 14th, 2021 notice of discipline document issued by Padilla to Camarzell, And we do know that after two separate external investigations that were conducted by law firms, Kammerzell was given a mere two week suspension. And you really gotta hear about this because before that, this man was on paid administrative leave. So during this entire investigation, which essentially found that hey, he definitely was displaying these Nazi insignias, uh, he was still being paid. It's just it's a pay vacation. Now check check out this is the insignia that he posted at his office on his office door. Yeah, this is it. This is the symbol of Nazi SS general called SS Obergruppenfuhrer without question no confusion whatsoever this is a nazi insignia for this general ss obergruppenführer now the city hired an investigator from the Seattle based law firm of Stokes Lawrence, no relation to me, to do an investigation of Kammerzell and the allegation by an officer that he displayed a Nazi symbol on the nameplate above his door. According to city documents during the course of the investigation, the city also asked the investigator to investigate allegations by a detective that Camarzell asked him to Photoshop a personal photograph of a dog while on duty and at the time showed the detective a photograph of himself with the Hitler mustache, wearing Lederhosen, and then referenced another photograph in which Camerzel was with an elected official and raised his hand in the Hail Hitler salute. Now, an officer also alleged that about 15 years ago, Camerzel joked more than once that his grandfather died in the Holocaust after getting drunk and falling off a guard tower. That's something to be proud of, right? Camerzell admitted to the investigator according to city documents that he placed what he described as a German rank, rank insignia above the name plate on his door. He recalled that years ago someone in the department gave him the nickname German general due to his last name and German heritage. He said he embraced the nickname and the symbol on his door it was up for about two weeks. Now this symbol is also Featured in a show that really imagines what the world would be like had the Nazis won in Germany uh, in World War II. So do you think that Camarzell knew of this show? Yeah, check this out. So Camarzell told the investigator that a co-worker encouraged him to watch the TV show, The Man in the High Castle. He said one of the main characters had the name Uber Gruppenfer. And that a coworker then gave him that nickname and other assistant chiefs began to call him that according to city documents. Camerzel said he googled the name Obern group referrer. And a result displayed the symbol that he then printed and placed above his door according to city documents. He said the term meant senior group leader and that caught his attention because he is the head of the investigations division. He said the two diamonds in the image were similar to the two stars rank that he has on his uniform. Now this is really despite, uh, despite his research, Kammerzell said that he had no idea that this symbol was related to Nazi paraphernalia. And his boss, Padilla, said, Okay, sounds good. Actually believed him. Jackson.
6: Well, this is, you know, just the endless trend of people in high positions who know better, pretending like they don't know anything and shouldn't be in those positions, in fact. You know, um, this obviously one was easily avoidable, but it's just completely and totally unnecessary to do things like this when you're in a position where you're supposed to maintain the public trust and just the nature of what you do. Your trust is always on thin ice at all times. And the times we live in double down on just, you know, your kind of general conscience that you shouldn't do things like that. But, you know, obviously he knew exactly what he was doing and this is no different than banking CEOs who somehow magically don't know that their company stole like a hundred million dollars from everybody. Like, oh, I had no clue what was going on, even though I know everything that's happening in the company. So it's just another one of those play stupid when you get caught in, in, you know, incidents and uh, you know, public pressure is what makes the difference.
38: Yeah, and it definitely didn't seem uh, like there has been enough public pressure at all here. The fact that his boss Padilla just says, "Oh, I'm gonna believe he's telling the truth. The fact that there is what evidence in the record that there's a picture of him dressed in Lederhosen doing essentially Hitler salute, that he brags about his grandfather being a Nazi. That he uh, essentially uplifts Nazi symbols that he's watched shows knowing that the symbols associated with Nazis. And yet he puts it on his door and everybody's kind of like, oh, I'm sure he had no idea that this is a symbol of the Nazi regime. It's like, get out of here. How dumb do you want me to be? But I'm not stupid enough. The fact that you've given this person uh, essentially uh, a rank and position so that he is leading in the investigations division. Like, this person can't be trusted. Are you kidding? I'm just, I'm I'm mesmerized by virtue of the fact that his supervising officer, the head, says, oh, I believe it, he really didn't know. It, it really definitely seems that that is kind of the white supremacy playbook, to act like it doesn't exist or like you have no
5: idea.
6: Yeah, as long as it's on record that you don't know, that's all that matters historically to them. So, you know, the, to hell with what, how everybody feels about it.
38: Yeah, and apparently uh, the department feels just fine keeping him in in his position after giving him what that uh, almost three week. Some odd uh, vacation where he was on paid leave during this investigation. It's an absolute farce. And you know, those two law firms that were involved, I wonder what their outcome was in terms of what they concluded, but I'm sure it's probably um, attorney client privilege. So we'll never really figure that out. But I can tell you that in the event that they said, oh, well, he doesn't know, that is also on them as well. Because the fact is, you can't tell me that with all of this quote unquote circumstantial evidence, you're not going to be able to infer that this individual knew exactly what he was doing. And the fact that Kammerzell is still on the streets and is supposed to be protecting and serving is extraordinarily problematic. So I really hope that police department up there in Washington state gets it together and essentially does what it can to eliminate all the Nazis it may have hiding in its ranks.
0: hittin'
7: in New York, word. word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A., word. word, word. I heard Y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina.
31: Video to show you from the Princess Market convenience store in Rocky Mount, showing an employee using what looks like a stick to repeatedly strike a customer whose family says he was having a seizure at the time. The employee was arrested yesterday after WRL sent the video to police. WRL's Kenan Willard shows us why some in the Rocky Mount community are calling for even more action today.
36: Well, you can see there's a lock on the door here at Princess Market today. and Let me show you this corner of the parking lot where a group has been gathered for several days now protesting this store. They say that the video is just the latest offense that's been caused by the store in their community. They want to see it shut down for good. Last week, 56-year-old Gregory Evans stopped in the Princess Market convenience store on Raleigh Road. Once inside, his family says Evans started having a seizure and was confronted by the clerk behind the counter. Cell phone video shows what happened next.
0: Get up, get up, get up, get up, up, get up.
36: The victim's sister says Evans was hospitalized after the beating, and on social media, the video quickly spread across Rocky Mount. The, the video
35: was, was horrible to really look at, to see a person really treated less than a human
36: being. Protesters began lining the street, calling for the store to be shut down, even holding a community meeting at Ebenezer Baptist Church Monday, where the victim's sister gave an update on Evans' condition and called for justice. He
34: still had full mobility of
0: his body, his but um, he's, um, he's
36: okay. Also present at the meeting, leaders of the Rocky Mount Police Department, and yesterday they took action, saying after WRAL sent them the video, they investigated and arrested 68-year-old Sobi Hassan, charging the employee with simple assault. We called the owner of the building to ask for an explanation of Hassan's actions and she told us Hassan's family rents the store from her and she hasn't spoken with them since seeing the video. A man outside the store earlier today who said he was close with the family said what Hassan did was very stupid but declined to connect us with the family for an interview.
35: There's widespread outrage is what we've seen.
36: Today a group gathered again to clean up trash, collect signatures and continue to protest until the stores closed for good saying Princess Market has failed to serve their community's needs for years. And the video was the breaking point. So we gotta restore value uh, back here in this community so that people can know that they do matter. Keenan Willard, WRL News, Rocky Mount. The, the man not, man not man race, race, class, class
17: genre, 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 and the dilemmas, dilemmas of black manhood. black manhood. The state
30: police unit that handles hate crimes is joining the investigation into Peter Spencer's death. He's a Jamaican immigrant from Pittsburgh, who was shot and killed in Venango County two weeks ago. Kylie Walker joins us now live with where the investigation stands and reaction from more people demanding justice.
26: Yeah, Ryan, right after Peter Spencer's death, state police say that they took a 25-year-old suspect and three others into custody for questioning, but now two weeks later, state police say that they have not filed any charges yet. Now, Spencer, he was a Jamaican immigrant and a resident of Pittsburgh, and state police say he was shot several times on December 12th. It happened on Carl's Road in Rockland Township. We do know now that the state police heritage affairs team, which prevents and responds to hate or bias related crimes is getting involved and the case has many groups, including the Black Political Empowerment Project and the Allegheny County Democratic Black Caucus calling for justice.
19: This was a whole family that, you know, came to this country seeking a better life and they their life is destroyed. You know, they will never be the same.
26: According to the County Democratic Black Caucus, Spencer had a fiancé and an unborn child. He was invited to Venango County by a former coworker for a hunting trip. Less than 24 hours later, when his fiancé went to pick up Spencer, he was dead. Now his funeral is set for New Year's Eve. Reporting live, Kylie Walker, Pittsburgh's Action News 4.
7: I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North
31: Carolina. WRL continues to ask questions after a man was shot and killed during a road rage incident in Fayetteville. And investigators examine whether to file more charges in this case. WRL's Fayetteville reporter Gilbert Bays just spoke with the man's family about their loss. It's a story you'll see only on WRL. Gilbert.
30: Well, Deborah, I am feeling the emotion of this story firsthand as we speak. We're here at the intersection of Cliffdale and um Road. You can see a makeshift candlelight vigil taking place right now. This is supposed to happen Friday, but as you mentioned, I've interviewed the wife and ex-wife of Steven Addison. They're here in the crowd right now, and they, I watched them as they were in tears trying to explain to their children why their father is not coming home.
15: He was a great guy. People always say someone lit up a room. My husband, he lit up every room he went into.
30: Justina Hemphill is talking about her husband, 32-year-old Stephen Addison. Police say on Monday he was shot and killed during a road rage incident on Skybo Road. Video shows the deadly shooting. 51-year-old Roger Nobles is charged with murder. That's his son confronting Addison on his motorcycle. The former Fort Bragg soldier lived just two blocks away from where he died. The family is from New York.
15: I was coming down this week to get him, <laughs> to bring him home. He was coming back. I was supposed to be here Thursday or Friday, we're going to pack up his place and bring him home.
30: The tragedy has brought two families together. Liz Orblis is Addison's ex-wife. They have a son and a daughter.
15: As soon as your
39: son walked away, you killed my kid's father. And now now he's
38: not here.
30: And so the families grieve together. They've placed flowers and pictures at the intersection where Addison died and wonder how a road rage incident turned into murder.
15: But who could do that? Kill somebody (laughs) and then just continue on with life like you didn't just do that.
30: Now, Nobles has confessed to the crime. He's been charged with first-degree murder. The big question right now is whether this will be considered a hate crime. And Deborah, I've talked with the uh, authorities, with the police and also the district attorney. This is an ongoing investigation, and right now they're trying to determine if race had anything to do what happened at this intersection on Monday.
23: Oh, Gilbert, your heart just breaks for that
21: family, seeing those children and the tears streaking down their faces. It's just so hard, so hard.
38: Life and faithful thank you
17: black male deaths are normalized we already know they happen constantly in our society so they need not be analyzed because black males are known to die we need not make them a subject of study there is no need to divert theoretical resources to the facticity of their demise attempting to do so to study black males as affected By particular ecological or ideological forces is reduced to the oh, here we go again syndrome.
15: Three
40: white men were sentenced to life in prison in Georgia yesterday for chasing a black man through their neighborhood and killing him. Ahmaud Aubrey was 25 when he was shot to death in February of 2020, and his father, Marcus Aubrey, spoke at the sentencing hearing yesterday.
0: His killers should spend the rest of their lives thinking about what they did and what they took from us. And they should do it from behind
9: bars.
40: Ultimately, a judge agreed. NPR Sarah McCammon was in the courthouse and joins us now from Savannah. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us.
32: Good morning, Scott.
40: We just heard from Ahmad uh, Aubrey's father there. What else was said in the courtroom?
32: Well, a few members of Ahmad Arbery's family just talked about him and about the larger meaning of this case. This, of course, was a case where three white men pursued and killed an unarmed black man in a quiet neighborhood in the Deep South. Ahmad's sister, Jasmine Arbery, described her brother's curly hair and dark skin. She said he had a broad nose and a tall athletic build and that he, quote, looked like me and the people I love. She said because of that, because of his race, these three men saw him as a threat. Arbery's murder became a symbol, of course, in 2020 of a larger reckoning over racial justice, and it took almost three months for prosecutors to file charges against his killers.
40: How did, um, how did the family react to the outcome? Which, uh, after all, it brings back memories of uh, their loved one.
32: There was a lot of celebration from both the family and community members in Brunswick. Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, had accused local authorities of trying to cover up her son's murder, and she'd pointed out that one of the killers, Greg McMichael, was a former local law enforcement officer. So after the sentencing, she spoke to reporters, and she expressed a lot of relief and gratitude.
34: I sat in that courtroom for five weeks straight, but I knew that we would come out with a victory. Yes. I never doubted it. And I knew that today would come.
40: Sarah, how how was it that one of the men was given an opportunity for parole but two of the others weren't? What was different about his case?
32: All right, so two of the three men, Travis McMichael and his father, Greg McMichael, were sentenced to life without possibility of parole. The third, William Roddy Bryan, was also sentenced to life, but with the possibility of parole. Now, prosecutor Linda Donikoski described the McMichaels, the father and son, as lacking remorse, and she told the judge that Greg McMichaels was involved in a leak last year of a video documenting the killing.
21: He believed that that video showed he and his son— we're not guilty of anything. That's two months afterwards. The state's position is he hasn't changed his mind. The state's position is he and his son still believe they didn't do
32: anything wrong. And that is a lack of remorse or empathy. Ultimately, the judge granted the state's request no possibility of parole for the McMichaels, but for Brian, the judge said he believed some of the evidence suggests that Brian was in a slightly different category, perhaps understood what he'd done was wrong, so he will have a chance for parole in 30 years. Even so, Brian is in his 50s, so he could still be in prison for the rest of his life. Sarah, what's ahead in this case? All three men have a right to appeal the verdict and the sentence. Brian's attorney, for example, has already signaled early in the hearing yesterday that he's preparing one. And this case will come before another court soon. The federal government is bringing hate crime charges against these men. That trial is scheduled to begin next month. Civil rights activists are promising to keep pressure on authorities to hold these men fully accountable for Ahmad Arbery's murder.
40: And for Sarah McCammon, thanks so much.
32: Thank you.
34: you Are talking about taking them people's money
10: to keep us... I am not talking about it. I'm telling you what's going to happen. Oh,
34: God, where's the bottom? Oh,
10: God, where's the bottom? Where is the bottom? You and that boy that was here today, you want everybody to carry a flag and a spear and sing some marching songs, huh? You're going to spend your whole life looking into right and wrong. You know what's going to happen to that boy? He is going to wake up one day locked in a dungeon, and the takers are going to have the key. You forget it, child. There ain't no causes. There is only taken in this world. He who takes the most is the smartest. And it don't make a bit of difference how.
0: You're making something inside of me cry, son. Don't cry,
10: mother. Some awful pain don't inside cry. of me. Don't cry. Just understand. Now, that white man is going to walk in that door, able to write checks for more money than we ever had. It's that important to him, and we're going to help him. We're going to put on a show.
0: Son. I come from five generations of people that were slaves and sharecroppers. But ain't nobody in my family never took no kind of money from nobody that was away of telling us we wasn't fit to walk the earth. We ain't never been that poor. We ain't never been that dead inside.
34: Well, we're dead now. All the talk about dreams and sunlight that goes on in this house, it's all dead now.
10: What's the matter with you? I didn't make this world. It was handed to me exactly like it is. Yes, I want some yachts someday. What's wrong with that? And I want to put some pearls on my wife's neck. You tell me what man decides in this world what woman should wear pearls and what woman shouldn't. I tell you, I'm a man. I say, I want her to wear it to him. How are you going to feel on the inside? I'm going to feel fine. You won't
0: have nothing left. I'm going to feel end.
10: fine. I looked that man right in his eye. All right, Mr. Charlie. All right, Mr. Lindler. That's your neighborhood out there. You want to keep it that way, you got a right to keep it that way. Just give me that money and the house is yours. And I'll feel fine. Fine! I'll say more than that. I'll say you give me that money and you won't have to live next door to no bunch of stinking... Walter! I'll feel fine. Maybe I'll get down on my black knees. All right, Mr. Charlie. All right, Mr. Great White Father. You just give us that money and we won't come out there and dirty up your white folks' neighborhood. And I'll feel fine. Fine, fine,
23: fine. As we reported tonight, Oscar winning actor Sidney Poitier has died at the age of 94. Throughout his life, the star carved a path for generations of black actors to come. Jeff Bennett has our remembrance.
4: Sidney Poitier transformed how black characters were portrayed on screen and became the first black actor to win an Academy Award for Best Lead Performance. For more on his life, I'm joined by Jacqueline Stewart, the chief artistic and programming officer for the new Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. She's a professor of film and media studies at the University of Chicago and host of Silent Sunday Nights on Turner Classic Movies. It's great to have you with us. And Sidney Poitier was was dignified. He was elegant. He was regal. He was known for playing characters who really jumped off the screen. But before we talk about his cinematic and cultural legacies. Help us understand his journey to stardom. He was born in the Bahamas before moving to Harlem and facing the the sort of hard scrabble life of an actor.
33: no, that's absolutely right. He really did struggle to become an actor. it wasn't something that was obvious, given his impoverished background in the Bahamas It's really, I think, gratifying to see the ways that he took all of those hardships that he faced, really um, working odd jobs in New York trying to figure out a way that he was gonna achieve his uh, his professional uh, vision. And uh, it's a really miraculous story, just at the level of how he entered the theater and then became such an important film star.
4: Poitier was the embodiment of a proud and dignified Black perspective in the American conversation about race during the Civil Rights Movement. And by 1967, as you know, he was Hollywood's top-earning leading man. He played a Philadelphia detective fighting bigotry in Mississippi. He played Virgil Tibbs in The Heat of the Night, a man righteous enough to slap in return the white politician who had slapped him. Take a look at this.
10: Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse? Say, last night, about midnight. Gillespie? Yeah.
29: You saw it. I saw it what are you going to do about it I don't
4: know so how did that resonate in the moment of a-, a black man slapping back the white man who slapped him
33: ooh it was an incredibly powerful moment and i would say it was an important moment not just for white audiences but for black audiences as well One of the things I think is so important about that scene is that we see Gillespie, uh, Rod Steiger's reaction to the slap, his visual reaction, and then his expression, I don't know what to do. It's a moment where um, white supremacy is being questioned and challenged. And that was tremendously significant to people, this idea that, um, you know, I think so for so many folks, people think of Sidney Poitier as this sort of harbinger of a kind of assimilationist or accommodationist point of view. But that scene demonstrates that he was also someone who was representing this, um, this fury that was raging in so many black communities and this tipping point that we're not going to take it anymore. And so that was hugely important to audiences across uh, the racial spectrum.
4: And then there was his role in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as is, is Dr. John Prentiss. He was half of this interracial couple. And he had to tell his disapproving father that times had really changed. I'm your son. I love you. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. And I want to ask you more about the, the scrutiny he faced, because Poitier was he was often hailed as this noble symbol of his race who took these sanitized roles, which drew criticism from some that he took these roles that in many ways were pandering to white audiences. You, you hear him say there, I don't think of myself as a colored man. There are uh, of lots of black folks who, who would say, you know, that is a choice not available <laughs> to, to, to many.
33: That's right. Yeah. I think what's important is to really look at the more um, nuanced aspects of what Poitier was doing across his career. He was so selective with the roles that he took. He understood the limitations of what was possible for Black actors in Hollywood during that time. And it seems to me that he was always trying to squeeze out as much the word you used a lot, dignity and respect. Um, and, and adding aspects to these performances that I don't think um, many audiences really understood whether they were championing him or criticizing him. So when he says, you think of yourself as a colored man, that's a generational thing that he's pointing to in that speech, that his father is from an older time. He's not saying um, that I'm not a black man, which is not the same thing as being a colored man. I think that part of what the point of that scene is is, Opening up a space for Black people to think about themselves in ways beyond the white limitations that had been placed on them, and I think now when we look back at a scene like that, we can see that there's something much more complex going on than, say, some simple rejection of his racial identity.
4: How would you capture his contributions to the culture?
33: He was hugely influential. I mean, this is an actor who really changed the minds of many white people about Black people, uh, of seeing Black people as complex human beings. And he also was a figure who paved the way for so many generations of Black actors to follow. There were very few models for him, but he has been the model for Denzel Washington and so many others who have followed.
4: Jacqueline Stewart, thanks so much for joining us as we remember the life and many contributions of Sidney Poitier.
33: My pleasure. Listen,
10: my Black.
34: Brothers.
10: Come go, Do you hear the waters rushing against the shores of our coastline Oh, come go, Do you hear the screeching of the cocks in yonder hills beyond where our chiefs meet in council for the coming of the mighty war? Oh, come go, Do you hear the beating of the wings of the birds as they fly low over our mountains and the low places of our land? Oh, come go, Do you hear the singing of the women, singing the sweet war songs? Oh, do you hear, my black brother? We hear you, flaming spear, telling us to prepare, to prepare for the greatest of the times,
7: black brother. Like brother hell.
17: Context of white supremacy. Absolutely had to. I'm not sure how long I have been using that sound clip from Raisin in the Sun, the 19, I believe, 1961 version. Uh, the Black Brother, Black Brother Hell, uh, but had to include that this week to make sure uh, anyone who's been listening to the cows, uh, if they were not aware that that exchange includes Sidney Portier, Louis Gossett Jr., Fiddler from uh, Roots the first time around, giving the appropriate response Black brother, hell. The late, great Sidney Portier passing away at the age of 94. Same thing I said a few times and we've had to do this, Colin Powell, Gwen Eiffel, Dr. Francis Cress Wellsing, Prince Michael Jackson, all of that he is way too young. I think we would be here and be here in exemplary health in body and mind if we had a system of justice as opposed to a system of white supremacy, racism. Anywho, but that is back-to-back weeks. White people around the world talking about a black person whose entire life defined by white supremacy, racism. Last week, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, South Africa. This time around, Sidney Fortier, neither black male, born in the United States, their entire existence defined by white supremacy racism how they responded to it the cows gusty uh gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday january 8 2022 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations to share, the number 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-pound, press star 61. If you would like to participate, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. A few things to share, then we will get the folks who dialed in for one. We will be on live Wednesday. This will be at your regular time because the guests will be joining us. the UK so this will be way early in the day being specific this will be 3 p.m. Eastern 2 p.m. Central 12 noon Pacific Wednesday Wednesday afternoon January 12 uh, professor Kevin wait he is a white man now interestingly I just said I have to be specific that is one thing counter-racism is about being specific. I do say strive for accuracy, especially if you're gonna quote someone, I would say, especially, and then highlight, underline, extra especially. If you're going to contest someone else's view, which is allowed, at least make sure you are accurate about what you are contesting. A few weeks back, Gus T said that I was not interested in hearing any more conversations about reparations. Somehow that got misconstrued as Gus is in opposition, which is not true. Apparently, he's not even totally opposed to conversation about reparations if I had known. Pause. We could get suspected racists, white people who are talking about reparations oh well let's talk to the white people about all of this i'm just not interested in hearing a whole lot of black people victims of racism do a lot of talking about reparations at this point i've heard that that's happened for decades maybe even longer but many 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 years i've never seen anything constructive happen from any of that dr kevin wheat will be on the program on wednesday and the whole reason that I found him, the program that we heard here on the cows compensatory called in, I think, three weeks ago, right at the end of the year. They were talking about a reparations project in California specifically, and some of their research included a white woman who did research history on so-called slavery in California. This is like the plantation slavery era. Uh, and so I wanted to see if we could get her as a guest, but she said because the reparations project in California is ongoing. They have some sort of non-disclosure agreement, so they can't talk about it until all this is done. So she can't do an interview. However, she redirected me to one of her white colleagues, Dr. Kevin White. She says, hey, he also does research on uh, slavery in California. And, you know, we, I think they might have looked at some of his research as well. And uh, there are studies for, you know, should reparations or why reparations should be considered for black people in California. So. That's where we found them. Uh, should be Wednesday, January 12th. Again, irregular time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 p.m. Pacific, because he'll be joining us from the UK. So I guess if we have folks other parts of the world, uh, you would like to take advantage and not have to be up at the crack of dawn or some ungodly hour to participate and ask a question, January 12th, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, white man on the program looking forward to it let's see uh no 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 notes to share my goodness uh invest if you think the program is constructive it'll be 13 years if we make it to february 21 about a month and a half away at this point we don't get drowned or frozen or whatever else i have to share i meant to to say to tell someone else and forgot. The alert came up on my phone. I just said the last week of 2021, we had all that snow and freezing weather. I think they had, uh, they said we had the coldest day in the history of Seattle in the last 30 years. I think it was like last Monday, the high for the day was 23 degrees. We had all that snow and everything for a whole week to, to try to survive. I got an advisory on my phone. I think we had about every advisory you could have There was an avalanche advisory, mudslide advisory, flood advisory, winter storm advisory. (laughs) I was like, wow, like I just said, the weather report every time was doom. Cataclysmic doom, in fact, and you're about to die. I've never seen an advisory like that. I'm not even checking these. (laughs) I'll just be surprised, like is it an earthquake? All of the above, typhoon, avalanche? Volcano? We do have volcanoes here, active. Woo. Uh Let's see. But if we survive all of that, it'll be 13 years. Next month, context of white supremacy, hopefully we have been mostly constructive, more constructive than not, for the Baker's Dozen. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, you will see uh, the poem that Alice Sebold wrote, Probably uh, like a day away, King Richard, uh, my review should be done. I just have to finish up the closing and we'll have that there too. But at least right now, the Alice Sebold poem from Lucky right there. Check it out if you're following in the book club. Once you hit the blog, racism com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Directly beneath it, you'll see the links for PayPal Cash App and Venmo. The address for Cash App is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Much obliged for all of the enormous support all over the world uh, from folks who have supported the cows. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, in addition, you can support via the wish list at Amazon.com, listed under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who have nabbed items from the wish list, which is also linked on the racism-notes.blogspot.com website. Again, huge thanks to all the folks who have nabbed an item or from the wish list over the years. Hopefully, we have provided information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. Let's see, some of the news reports that we heard. Uh, the report that we heard on brain damage, I thought it was so important. I think you heard in that report. You showed me someone who has a concussion. I will show you a change in personality, powerful. He said it may be small, may be large. Some people can deal with this better than others. Uh, he recommended to try to reduce the amount of inflammation in the body. Now, one, Dr. Ruby Lathan has talked to us about this repeatedly, guest on the program over the years. One major source of inflammation, folks on the SAD, standard American diet, Obesity. Being substantially over what your healthy body weight should be introduces a substantial amount of inflammation into the body on a regular basis, which is not good for your overall health. So that's one right there. Get that weight down if you you know if that's a problem, and keep it down. And then just the foods that you eat. You now we talked about chicken. That's one trying to reduce you know foods that you eat that can tend to produce inflammation. Chicken is a big one try to eliminate the products from the di- uh, from your diet that can help also but brain health and he said even hygiene that's connected to what you eat but I mean he said yeah you know making sure you floss and are good about your oral hygiene that that is good for brain health as well certainly what type of water you're drinking drinking water and then hoping that you get water that has not been poisoned if you're in Benton Harbor Flint, Newark other areas that we probably don't know about. Uh, let's see. Next they had the report on mental health. Uh, I thought that was really important as well. Uh, they said isolation is really bad, which I hadn't thought about in just in terms of mental health. Uh, so make sure that they're saying you're having contact. I think we even had someone they were talking about one of the ways that white supremacy racism works, kinda get us estranged from our families. Lots of different ways that that can happen to try as best we can to minimize that. Racists, they really go to work. They can get you isolated. You don't have anybody that's looking out for you, somebody to come and help, try to support as best they can. Really like to go to work to Black people, on Black people, non-white people in general when they can get them isolated. In fact, a lot of times in those tragic arrangements, that's exactly the mission. Get that non-white person pulled away from all the other non-white people and then you can really bring trash them. Let's see. Next, they had, and not eating all the time. Thought that was important too. Said uh, that your brain, your body needs a break. Make sure that you regulate uh, when you eat. I talked about that before. In fact, when I was all extra tubby, got myself down to a healthy weight, doing yoga and plant-based diet, that was one of the first things I did. I used to do that all the time. No time is a bad time to eat. If you've got cookies and Cheetos and potato chips, and chicken wings, I'm ready to munch. That is a hard, it is very, very common. Go to, you know, I hop waffle house at three in the morning, four in the especially on the weekends, like right now. And this time of year, cause you got maybe some of the holiday, you know, Food and leftovers and cakes and pies still around. You can munch off of that all day and night and just more weight gain, more weight gain, more weight gain. Kind of cold, so some people might, be, might not be exercising as much as they normally would. If it was warmer, get that exercise in too. Uh, next, man, they talked about all of this. The next report was about how females specifically, the increase in drinking. Now I don't know if that's one, did they mean all females, white and non-white? Is it disproportionately white females? Disproportionately non-white females. Everybody. One more on, What did he say? Sobriety would be best, especially if they're saying that there is a 323% increase in female alcohol consumption amongst mothers with children under the age of five. Like, oh my God. The first thing I thought when I heard that was, five years old is the age that many reputable medical institutions recommend that you breastfeed to five. So if they're saying it's all these moms with really young children, like they could have children at breastfeeding age and doing all this drink, like that is not healthy at all. Not that we have tons of females who breastfeed here, like who's doing that. But I mean, wow, that is, uh, that is staggering sobriety would be best especially for attempted parents who have you know children that are young enough that they could be breastfed uh let's see uh the next report man okay i did i played the report about how they noted that some of the vaccines can impact menstrual cycles for some females I did not play that report to influence anyone's opinions about the vaccines, whether or not they want to take the vaccines or booster shots. I played that report one last year, uh, about the middle of the year. They had a report from St. Louis Public Radio, and it was on the same subject, saying some of the very same points, uh, that this hasn't been discussed, that this has been minimized. You got a lot of white guys who are medical professionals, and they seem to be ignoring this issue. And that was making people even more, uh, at minimum, suspicious about the vaccine. Do I want to take it and have my menstrual cycle disrupted? Is it safe? And, you know, lots of questions. Even people who were talking about fertility and all that. In fact, I think when we played that report from St. Louis Public Radio, uh, I believe our caller in Georgia dialed in and she said, man, family members have been getting on, you know, trying to coerce me to get this vaccine and they, they've worn me down. I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. I was about to do it. And then I heard that report about the menstrual side. She said, oh, no, 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 Change my mind. No way. <laughs> they almost had me. I'm not doing it now. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just telling you all, my thought process when she shared all this was, dang, I was not planning it to, you know, sway anyone about the vaccine or not. I just thought it was important information. You know, we've been talking about the COVID situation, the vaccines, as has everyone in the world. I just thought, you know, important. We should share, think about it, process it, see what we think, but that was my same uh, thought process uh, with this segment. They still said within the report that they say you should get the vaccine, come to your own conclusions. That was why I wanted to include it. I thought it was important. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I hate shout outs, but that segment, they talked to the uh, OBGYN context of white supremacy. We've got to do shout out. This is the second time this week he gets a mention, J. Marion Sims. Isn't he the father of gynecology? Got this whole body of study, torturing, experimenting, he will say, on black females. Jay Marrienton, let's see. Uh, they had the segment, they talked to Congressman uh, Bobby Rush. Uh, he is leaving Congress after his many, many years, decades at this point, uh, of service. Uh, they talked about how he was in the Black Panther Party and how they were portrayed as terrorists at one point. Uh, very dissimilar to the white rogues from January 6th of last year, but whatever. Uh, and he, they said, you know, hey, it's going to change in how the Black Panther Party is portrayed. And, you know, now they're they're more sympathetic. You know, they got that movie, uh, Judas, and, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, I said, pause. I saw that movie, reading more important than watching television. But I did see that movie. I did not like that movie. I said, I saw two movies that I appreciated seeing that did not make me want to vomit because they had predominantly black cast that came out in 2021. Judas and the Black Messiah was not one of them. Have a whole movie focused on sell out, no count black people, snitch into white people and have that be the main character. And that's a positive portrayal. That's the best you could do. Let's see. All right, so they got to the reports on January 6th. Uh, just some of the things that I thought were important. Uh, in one, they said they had millions. They were like over 20 million sympathizers. Like, my goodness. <laughs> like, can we get 20 million supporters and sympathizers of counter-racism or Black people? 20? Do they have 20 million sympathizers for the victims of Dylan Storm Ruth, Mother Emmanuel AME Church? Do they have 20 million sympathizers and supporters? Disgraceful. They said in Texas. Now, I thought that was extremely fascinating. And again, the sister, six years since she passed away, right? January 2nd, 2016. They said in the counties in Texas, and that's beyond Texas, they had a report. I shared it on Facebook uh, some weeks back, that in counties where the white population was falling, they mentioned the specific county in Texas where they said It dropped from 63% white to 50% white, that they had a significant number of people from that area who were ready to roll. Let's get to the capital. This is a disgrace. They're taking our rights. There was a report that said that that was the pattern above any other pattern. White people in areas where a substantial percentage of the population switched from being white to non-white, much more likely to have somebody end up going to the cap. I, whew, the grand sister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. So having it be more apparent directly in what you see on an everyday basis, not as many individuals classified as white. Fear of white genetic annihilation. Oh my God, violent action is necessary. Let's go to the Capitol and terrorize and call firefighters a nigger a million times. Remember that one from last week? I almost included that in the segment. Uh, let's see. They had the and they said that they were using coded language down in this part of Texas. You know we, we want to keep want to keep this area suburban. No apartments. Lots of ways that they codify. We don't have to make it that we're directly saying too many niggers, It's too many dark people, but you know what it is. Also incidentally, 13 years so who's been doing that. They said McKinney, Texas. I have been to Texas several times, actually. McKinney, Texas. Why should McKinney, Texas be familiar for counter racist? They can give you a double on this one, especially for cows with us If you've been here for a while. So one, 2014, they had one of many tacky incidents at the pool that was instigated by a white woman. Remember when they had that black female teenager, And the white officer came out and he did the barrel roll, slammed her on the ground. It's kind of pornographic, sexually aggressive too, because she's a a 14-year-old black girl. She has a bikini on. He comes out and is touching all on her and everything while he's got her on the ground. That was in McKinney, Texas. Maybe some of the white women that instigated all that, maybe they were in D.C. One, that might be another one that I pull and say, I think that's sloppy journalism because, I mean, if retarded Gus T with no budget and no staff, if I remember that from 2014, you're telling me you got a staff and a budget at PBS? Nobody thought, hey, is this important? That pool incident did happen in McKinney. Give you the double for the cows if you go back in the archives for that same time that summer. We had a black male on the program. He went to visit his black. Oh, God. Into the story now. I got to finish it. So, this is another cowbell. Black male went to visit one of his black male friends who was in a tragic arrangement, had offspring with a white woman. Surprise here, the black male gets into some sort of verbal dispute with his uh, white baby mama. She says, I'll fix his wagon. Metaphor. So, she leaves the black male and his black male friend. She leaves, goes out to her car, calls the police and reports that there are two black males who threatened her being loud and rowdy. And they said that the police come, they're going to shoot and kill them. You already know what happens here. So officers in the gang. And this happened, I think like a month after the pool incident, like literally is maybe within 30 days of the pool situation, which was big news. So the police come throw them on the ground they're at gunpoint uh, face down on their property. Um, for like 20 minutes before they realized like oh this white woman lied oh we're sorry about that niggers. get up my bad sorry about that up oh, this is your let's get the grass off all right well, well you're not something to crack are you in the archives 2014 uh, the white woman sat across the street and watched all this happen in the oh uh, that would be another one maybe she was in the capitol sending her well wishes, McKinney, Texas. Let's see, the whole, uh, and they didn't even say racist for the most part. They said, nativist, whatever that means, extremist, whatever that means. They even said in Texas, they said down in McKinney, they said that violent rhetoric was coming from the evangelical church pulpit. I thought Mr. Fuller said, religion of white supremacy. Duh. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't even even read it correctly. I just said strive for accuracy. They said, accuracy, they said violent rhetoric was coming from the evangelical church where from the pulpit, they were saying, keep your guns loaded. Minister Malcolm, he said, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. That's the religion of white supremacy. Let's see. I'll give like a couple more thoughts that will grab the listeners. Number one, I would not be surprised at all if they end up lying and like five, 10 years from now, if there's still a system of white supremacy, if they lie and say that Al Sharpton and Black Lives Matter members were the ones in D.C. protesting and cutting a fool and Trump supporters were there to try to stop it, I would not be surprised at all. It was Antifa. It was Black Lives Matter. Al Sharpton. No count Al Sharpton. Let's see. They said, and I have I really even haven't heard them make sure that, be clear, this was white people. White supremacy, racism, in action. They said it was mostly white. I would like to know, like, let's be specific. Out of all the people that have been arrested, charged, charges pending, whatever it is, how many of them are white and how many are non-white? Let's be, so if it's like five, if there's some racially ambiguous, just be specific. White people, white hooliganism, white terrorism. That's another one too. They said none of these people have been charged with terrorism. Congressman Bobby Rush, Dr. Huey P. Newton, Mumia Abu Jamal, you all are terrorists. Asada Shakur, the folks at the Capitol were, passionate i guess let's see the hbcus i'm just curious to see how many people heard of that with this the environment they just had that bombing in tennessee during christmas of last year that's like a year ago that a lot of folks forgot about that the threat they were going to bomb that white man he was going to bomb the library of congress the white man i think in 2019 where he was bombing the fedex facility in texas all of this escalation of violence and you get Seven different threats against HBCUs about a bombing. Just seeing if folks heard that one. I saw that was towards the end of the week. Uh, Let's see. Peter Spencer, black male. He went on a hunting trip with his white friends and was found dead. They don't have any information. Totally suspicious and weird. White friends are dangerous. Going on a hunting trip with white people. I don't know if you've, uh, man, we had lots of movies. I don't know if people saw the, the movie uh, Surviving the Game, I see. That's what it reminded me of immediately, going hunting with white people. And this ends up being a problem. Another one, I am not surprised at all. They made a whole movie about that with Ice-T. He barely survived. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, speaking of not surviving, uh, save, there was lots of stuff in North Carolina this week. My goodness. Uh, I guess I'll pause real quick, too. Uh, All the folks in Virginia on the East Coast who are dealing with the snowstorm, man, I'm with you. We just had that last week, so I know how you're feeling. I didn't get stuck on the road or anything. Hopefully that didn't happen to any of the cows, listeners, or victims, but I'm very familiar with snowstorms in Virginia and them not being equipped to deal with snow very well, especially if it's a lot of snow. So, hope all the folks, uh, Danville, Roanoke, Martinsville, Blacksburg. Richmond, all of the other areas, Bluefield are uh, surviving, doing as well as they can uh, in the uh, Commonwealth. Mr. Days of the Coon Man. Let's see. He had the road rage incidents. Talk about so many of those. Black male fathers, Stephen Addison, being killed. I say that all the time. This is not a time to get into confrontations. Might be someone armed, ready to kill. Uh, and Sydney Poitier, lots that I could, uh, say. Uh, guess who's coming to dinner seems to be mentioned frequently. Cabell, when people talk about his film career. I would encourage folks, Dr. Kamal Kambon, he said, Bucking the Preacher, which features the lovely late Ruby D, uh, and Harry Belafonte. Uh, it is excellent, all about racism, white supremacy uh pressure point you can check that one out too which is about white supremacy racism that's an earlier film i think they came out in like the 50s uh if my memory is correct uh, i think pressure point he is like a psychiatrist and he's supposed to work with some racist white man to make him not racist <laughs> like uh that's one uh I'm trying to think of any other films. we watched in the heat of the night if you go back in the archives i remember with justice that's when i had not seen the movie in the heat of the night. I've seen the tacky like television uh, syndication. I don't even think I've sat through a whole episode of that. Uh, Sydney Poitier is not in that, but I have never seen the movie that all that is based on. Uh, and so we, I knew about the scene and everything. So like sometime in 2011, like Justin and I, we sat down and watched it. We, the scene that they talked about uh, when uh, Mr. Poitier, when he smacks the racist back, my name is Mr. Kibbs like oh my god like black people wigged out when that scene happened way back when that film came out in the 60s and what have you even before dr king was killed when that film was released we thought that was the funniest thing in the world like we ran around the house for like a good two three weeks saying that like uh oh my gosh like (laughs) they made a whole movie i didn't even know they made a whole movie they called me mr tibbs after that because it had such a response like so uh black people not being allowed to touch Retaliates violently against white people is so disallowed that scene still has resonance even some 60 years later. Anywho, lots to say about Mr. Portier. We'll discuss all that later on. Again, Cowbell and uh, Buck and the Preacher would be one I would recommend if you would want to check out a film. Oh, and I guess if I had a request, if we could make it happen to read the play Raisin in the Sun. Sidney Portier is in that. That's where I always put that sound clip where he says, uh, Black Brother. Man, that is for so many reasons. I wanted to read that last year. And it's such an important play written by Lorraine Hansberry, Black Female, Cowbell. Uh, but yeah, that would be mine. If we could maybe organize to read the play, uh, it is, I mean, it's a play. So that means they're parts. We could give you them up if people want to do it. I don't know if we could read it live or if you have to record. I don't know how that would work for a play, but. I would love to read the, the play Raisin in the Sun on the book club. Then uh, we could watch Raisin in the Sun and all of that and talk about it. If we can make it happen, we'll see. All of that said, the number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, If you take about five minutes, share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand. Uh, No metaphors. Always appreciate uh, folks can be precise, exact, specific with their comments. Uh, I will remind uh, about the metaphors. We had, wow, doozy. So the metaphor that they used, not the racists, not the white terrorists in the waiting, since they've seen that the, White hooligans and terrorists weren't punished from last January 6th. They said, what we now have is dry kindling for a wildfire ready to ignite at the smallest spark. W-T-H, what are you talking about? Do you mean armed white thugs and killers ready to brutalize and kill? Is that what you mean? Are you talking about that? Are you talking about starting a campfire, making some s'mores? They didn't talk about the Black Panther Party as kindling and wood and do we have enough, that's not the way they talk about them, that's not the language that they use. Master deceivers. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, you could use your mute button. That would be grand as well. That way we don't have to compete with unnecessary background noise. Star 6-1, if you have commentary to share. Uh, let's see. NAB, the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open.
41: Greetings to everyone
17: retired firefighter in Florida.
41: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Gus and everybody. Uh, from my understanding, Mr. Sidney Portier was born in Miami, Florida, February the 20th, 1927, the same year that my, uh, of my mother's birth. Uh, family was, uh, mother and father they were farmers and from time to time they would come over come into miami to sell produce and unexpectedly uh his mother gave birth to him premature uh he wasn't expected to live uh but he did as we know (laughs) and uh He didn't spend a lot of time in Miami, but he did come back to stay in Miami at the age of 14 or 15, and then quickly moved to New York City. Uh, I saw a Miami Herald article to where the reason why he left so quickly is because of racism, white supremacy Uh, was uh, I guess to a uh, less, refined means as what you would have found in new york Uh, uh, so that's where he uh ended up going but anyway uh i uh growing up uh my mother and father attempted mother and father would take us to the movies a a lot and for the most part most of those movies (laughs) was featuring Mr portier uh just about every one that you uh stated in the sixties, starting with Lilies of the Field, uh, which I think he was awarded a uh academy award in his uh, part in that movie uh, one thing that I always thought about him as a child was. Uh, just about, he was one of the very few black images that was not. Uh, I can't. Well, this this is the day we don't use metaphors or anything, but uh, clowning or anything like that. Uh, serious of some sort of serious nature. It was Dr. King, uh, and Sidney Poitier. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't think of a whole lot. Uh, of non white black people who were not characterized in a laughable uh clowning type of way other than a few people and he was definitely one of them. Uh and uh yeah those about you know many thoughts on him uh as far as uh he carried a lot of self respect in my opinion. Um uh, And that's all I'll say for right now. And uh, I'll listen to everybody else's comments. Thank you.
17: Much obliged. Retired firefighter in Florida. Said strive for accuracy. I thought uh, Mr. Portier was uh, born in the Bahamas, but actually born in Miami, Florida, which is, you know, the metaphor. They use a hop, skip and a jump or... I guess a splash and a swim. It's uh, not that far away.
41: Yeah, uh, not, not that yes. far. Try for accuracy. He grew up in the Bahamas, though. He did grow up in the Bahamas, for the most
17: part. Right on. Black Self Respect, uh, heard pretty frequently uh, about Mr. Uh, Portier. Buck and the Preacher, again, Dr. Cambon. that's one that he would point to.
26: So Great movie. Check
17: out this weekend. Mm-hmm. The lovely Ruby D, Harry Belafonte, and all about racism, white supremacy, like, hey, what's not beloved? love? Let's see.
21: Uh,
17: other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, Proceed.
19: And
41: while while they uh, getting ready, I I would also say that most of most of his movies did eventually come on television, most, if not all. Oh, yeah.
17: Oh, yeah. Huge body of work. He was active for such a a long time. Uh, Folks can if you have the time, I guess if you're in one of those areas where it snowed. Uh, and you're going to be stuck inside uh, for a while where uh, I guess if you got quarantine time, Hey, uh, pull up your account streaming service or whatever it is. And you can go through the Sydney Poitier library and pull up quite a few. Most of them will be about white supremacy, racism, the defiant ones, like pretty much all the films throughout the arc of his career, white supremacy, racism, uh, not saying that, you know, I think all of them are construct like you heard the, point from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is probably, unfortunately, one of the ones that they'll be talked about the most, uh, but the, him talking to his Black male father and saying, oh, you think of yourself as, you know, a colored man. I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as a good man because I got a white woman, <laughs> um, a no-count white woman, and I'm a Black physician. Uh, she doesn't have a job or anything. Um, who knows she could be a high school dropout? She's white. Um, but yeah. You can go through his whole uh, film bio- biography, and he actually wrote, pause right there, shame on Gus. You certainly can watch a number of his films, but I mean, hey, he did write uh, a biography. I think there are several uh, books that he wrote uh, about his life, his experience, uh, racism, white supremacy. I was even looking, one of the chapters in one of the books is, why do white people like Sidney Poitier? So, question. I guess he, you know, examines that uh, topic for the whole chapter or what have you, because like what they said in the audio segment, I think uh, some folks considered because of the statement like I just talked about, they talked about in the clip from, yes, who's coming to dinner and he did marry a white woman, I think more than one, unless I'm in error, Uh, I think he might have been that uh, name calling sellout, all the rest of it, uh, victim of white supremacy all of us responding as best we can, but you can review his whole life record, see what one victim, what he had to say about all of this and why white, white people liked to. Oh, that was one thing I had to make sure I got that in. They said that Sidney Poitier made white people change the way that they saw or thought about black people. That is a lie. If that were true to any substantive level, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't be talking about producing Alice Ebold's Lucky as a movie in 2022 about the black me- Negro rapist to get it, to just have that sort of lie in the middle of Sidney Portier's death at the age of 94. Like, come on, you can lie and, and toss in your little rhetoric to minimize and confuse about white supremacy racism any other time. Let's not do that in the wake of Mr. Portier's transition. white people change their views uh let's see other folks who have commentary uh oh Irie, yes ma'am
37: hotepu greetings um okay so i'm gonna start with the word of the day according to dictionary.com which is based off of uh, western's dictionary it is Bill Dunn's Roman, Bill Dunn's Roman, a type of novel concerned with the education, development and maturing of a young protagonist. And I thought it was uh, befitting of the compensatory call in because I was wondering if this word would apply to um, lucky. Um, (laughs) Of course, I'm being cynical um uh, i'm i just finished catching up on the archives um during my downtime, and i i know i wrote in and i couldn't remember everything i wanted to say because i was a little bit um thick of you know like we said the weather fluctuating and um i guess i was caught off guard by being out and not wearing enough layers for a particular day that it was cold So I had to write in. But what I forgot to add was um, when she mentioned the cracker and the penis, she was definitely not only being trashy, but she was definitely practicing racism because a cracker most likely is going to be white or it's going to be the first type of cracker that a person thinks of, a saltine. And the penis she was referencing was black. So one of these things belongs in your mouth or in her mouth, and one doesn't. At least that's what she's trying to lead people to believe. Speaking of mouths, I suspect that a lot of inflammation in the mouth comes from sugar because it's known to build acidity in the mouth and also rot your teeth which, again, leads to heart problems. Um, victim of racism, friend of mine, has a daughter. She's about seven years old, coming soon. Well, by the end of the year, you know how time flies. Um, she's tooth like She's losing all of her baby teeth, and she's past the point of losing baby teeth. And I suggested to her, uh, him, to stop giving her so much sugar because not only are her teeth you know, messed up, but she's very hyperactive. Um, I tried to do some, um, I guess, homeschool lessons with her. She was going remotely to school and he didn't have the time for whatever reason to be with her on the computer while she did her modules and she couldn't sit down. It was bad because I tried some uh, reinforcements like, okay, once we do this, we're going to take a break and color, or we're going to, you know, do something fun for five minutes. And she was, you know, I made eye contact with her. She said, okay. And she was really enthusiastic, like she wanted to do it, but she just couldn't because she was just, she was just sugared up. Um, also, the drinking uh, has a lot of sugar in it. When I heard the thing about women drinking... And the thing about getting rest, so you uh, rest in your body and your brain. Uh, People, as well as non-white people, people in general, but especially non-white people, enjoy the tradition, American tradition of going out and drinking at night when the body is supposed to be at rest and purging which would disallow such an activity to occur because at that point, the liver has to concentrate on getting uh, toxins out of the body because most of the time people drink to taupe. They don't take a few sips and leave it alone. They get drink after drink, especially women. Women are encouraged to get as many free drinks as possible when they go out. I was one of those people, victim of racism. I wouldn't drink and get like passed out, but, you know, men would come up, Hey, would you like a drink? Sure. Um, And to share something a little bit personal, um, I had a spiked drink one night. Uh, I thought I was being proactive. I watched the bartender make the drink and uh, he slid it to me. I drank it. And a friend of mine I was at her house the next day, and she said, yeah, you were out of it. You were sweating, dancing real hard. I do remember being really energetic out of nowhere. Like, I like to dance, but um, it was, like, amplified. She said that uh, she pulled me, like, we got to go now. And the gentleman that paid for the drink said, it's okay, I got her. And she was like, no, I'm taking her home. And I'm grateful that she did, even though she was kind of known among the people that we knew about being one of those people that like to, like, I don't know, have casual sex with people when she goes out. But this particular night, she dedicated herself to my safety, so I thank her um, for that. Even though we're not friends anymore, she's still kind of was in the party scene. Uh I have a workplace racism report that I just found out about from my my uh, minor. Well, not minor. I keep forgetting he's an adult now. Um, hmm. So he just turned 18 uh, despite his medical challenges. He got a job, uh, cell phone store, working alone. He tells me that uh, he was left alone to open and close, which is not the policy. And that a white guy walked in with a whole bunch of, quote, confederate flag rings and a swastika on his jacket. And I asked him what happened. I, I asked him if it was a white person. And it may sound dumb, but I asked if it was a white person because we got those special, I hope that's not a metaphor, but we have those special black people out here that, you know, be saluting the Hitler too. Um... I was just wanting to be sure. He said, yeah. And I told him, I said, Hey, you need to keep a notebook because if something happens on the job and you're alone, you need to be able to recall the details of what happened. And he already had an incident where he was accused of something that, um, he didn't do. And it was made known by many people that he didn't do it, but, um, you know, he didn't have a record of it. And I told him at that point, you need to keep uh, records for work. And then this happened. And I said, well, do you, are you getting it that you need to keep notes for work and the doctor considering what's going on, you know, with the medication situation? And thanks to the nurse again uh, for that uh, expertise. And he was like, it's not that serious. And I said, you know, it's just like my grandmother said, it's going to take time and living on. Uh, speaking of that, I want to say I say and uh, Duwai, thank you to the ancestors um, for, you know, everything that they've done to um, give their energy to us. But so we can still be here. You know, um, I miss my grandmother a lot. And I'm sure other people do, too. Um, as well, as my father, which brings me to this. It's time for non white black people to stop placating to um the the urges of non white people that we know are sick. Like I was told by I was told by someone about my dad that um you know he loved his candy. He, he, I get it, but he was diabetic. He my father had two transplants. It didn't matter if he loved his candy. He didn't need the candy. He's not here because of candy. Okay. And y'all, they watched him. I wasn't around him to discourage it. Um, and I'm sorry for that in ways, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm working that out still, but we watch people eat themselves into graves. And we don't say anything or we feel sorry for them. Oh, just give it to them this time. And then it's the next time and the next time. And I understand that people don't want to necessarily dedicate themselves to eating vegan or alkaline. But when a person's sick, that means something in the body is out of order because most of the time the information that's going in their body from food is not good information. And then the body becomes inflamed and we're feeding them illness. It has to stop. Um, I had a victim of racism get mad because she was at the bakery and she reminded me of my aunt that passed away from kidney failure because of diabetes and some other stuff that happened. And when I saw this lady, I saw my aunt and she, she my aunt ate six crispy cream donuts in front of me in the car she got a dozen she ate half in the car and I was like I think you I think you ate about five too many donuts she was like girl I'm fine I was young so I couldn't chastise her but I just spoke my piece and you know um she just kept eating people kept letting her eat you know and she didn't work out and then by the time she got to the point where she wanted to try and make a turnaround it was too late her body was dependent on pharmaceuticals and then she died partly because it's a long story but nobody around her said listen it's time to stop you overweight like edema is the first sign of kidney failure if people don't know this um and that was the first thing that let her that should have let us know that that's what was happening but we were not educated on how the body works And I didn't, you know, I still was in the mode of trusting doctors. I definitely am not in that mode. So much so, I told my care partner, if something traumatic happens to me, take me home and let me die. I'm serious. I'd rather die on my own terms than die in the hospital um, and let them experiment on me. Which brings me to um, it's gonna be carnival time in um, in New Orleans real seconds. soon. Sure, yeah, it's gonna be carnival time in New Orleans really soon. And they didn't have it last year, and they're having it this year. So we see how dedicated people are to stopping the spread of coronavirus. I am my turn. Carnival.
17: That's right. That's right. That's been messed up for a minute down in New Orleans. Like they are serious about. Speaking of alcohol, I like think they are serious about carnival down there. Woo. Uh, much obliged, Irie for sharing. Grandmothers are indeed important. Uh, I there's lots that I could say there. I'll only say one. Neutralizing workplace racism Fridays 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I'm so sorry that your son had to experience that. Man, with all of the violence and the way that people have been behaving, even enforcement officers, because you had the the enforcement officer, had the swastikas and all that uh, posted on his door. Uh, I think that's brilliant recommendation, having the journal so that he can log incidents like this. And then what am I supposed to do? Like, if this guy comes in, he's got a gun or, you know, whatever, or he starts being hostile, discourteous. What's the proceeding? I'm here by myself. Like, whoa. Everyone be more. That's what they were talking about in that clip when they said that nonsense uh, that we have dry kindling for a wildfire ready to ignite at the smallest spark. That is just, you know, another example. Grandmothers are super important. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, I'll give out the number again. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate, sobriety would be best. Folks we've not heard from, Can I be heard? Nick over the road. Yes, sir.
42: Greetings, Gus and greetings, everyone else. Um, I wanted to start off by saying a resolution that I started in 2021, which I said, um, when it comes to non-white black people that I would not compete with them in any way, shape, form or fashion. I mean, and I mean any way, shape, form or fashion. Like if I'm playing basketball and it's a non-white black person on the other team, I, I step out of the game. I do not want to compete with us <laughs> anymore, considering how many other people we have competing with us. And I added one for 2022, which is no arguing. Um, um It's one thing I wanted to say about Lucky. Um, the first reading when she was describing her rape there was an inconsistency with um, her suspected um, rapist making her kneel. Um, she said that he made her kneel, and then she said some other stuff, and then she repeated it, you know, as if she um, he had her do it again. And it's it's, it's a couple of inconsistencies in there that kind of raised my um, my curiosity that if that was true or not. And the second part, that poem that you read that she put in the book, um, when she made reference to I think it was cutting of his balls, she or testicles or whatever she, she referred to them as being red. And that kind of raised my that raised my suspicion that um that her rapist might have been um um not black at all. Because um, I' seen the, the picture of the guy, and I just can't see how that would be possible. Um, in regards to Addison, the, the young man that, that got killed in the road rage incident, um, and I wanted to add that the young man and, and well, the two men in Florida, one that got killed over the handicapped parking spot where he was shot in the chest and, and died in front of his son, and the other young man who was helping out a coworker he was working with an Amazon and, um, helping them fix his, his, vehicle and got into it with, uh, with, the um, a white, um, suspected race soldier actually off duty or something like that or had police training. Um, he was shot in the back and paralyzed as he ran away when he, when, when the soldier put out his gun, um, for the last, i would say just under four years, I've been wearing body armor on a daily basis. Um, even when I drive it, <laughs> um, because I just can't look at that and, and and ignore it. So I just, you know, I've been wearing body armor on top of the body cam and having my two-way radio. Um, and when I hear, oh, yeah, um, and, and one more thing, the, the words, like, um, I guess like the word of the day, um, I suggest that um, we familiarize ourselves with etymology. Um, um a resource that we could use is online Adamazic Dictionary, E. T. Y M online Um words like nice meaning foolish, ignorant, stupid, words like smart having nothing to do with information, knowledge, um, wisdom or anything like that. It just simply means to cause pain or be in pain. Um aunt meaning not just yeah your, your, uh, your parents' sibling. It just means an older woman and so forth. And um, and when I hear people talk, especially like news or whatnot, I ask myself three questions, and I call it the three who's. I ask myself who's doing the talking, not necessarily the person saying the words because they could use anybody for that. Who wrote the words that's being said? The second who is who's being talked to, you know, um, because I'm real careful about when they specify things like human dna or even when they use the word black which kid well, i guess more currently be referring to um non-white people but when you get into the etymology of it it refers to the others um and the third who is who's being talked about um because i started to realize that um non-white black people are very rarely talked about um and i have implemented a safety program um inside of my llc um i'm pretty much the only person involved in the llc but i had to put the program down so i have some kind of a guidance so that i won't argue with people and when i'm at work um i just simply talk about work related issues and when i'm talking to non white black people um if it's not work related issues or, or trucking related issues i talk about safety and this is where i incorporate the the 10 stops and our grand addition to the to the 10 stops and um i basically bind myself to this code of conduct on and off of work um just simply for myself um, and that's that's all I have on my notes. Uh, thank you for letting me speak, and I'll mute my line. Oh, one more thing, guys. I'm sorry. Um, did you see though the item that I sent to you um, or suggested to you on your wish list on Amazon? right? I'm sorry, I can't
26: suggested.
43: hear you
42: yes
17: uh so was this like an email or
38: no i went, you went to
42: your. like if you go to your wish list there are um items that people can suggest to you
17: oh
42: it, it should be attached yeah, it should be attached to that because i looked on it again and i see that you didn't approve it or delete it so i just wanted to check with you again to see if you saw it i mean i could tell you what it
17: is if you you <laughs> well, don't tell me, because I haven't, I haven't done okay. this before, so let me, uh, yeah, let me let me go see it so I can approve it or whatever, or even find where it is, because no, answer your question, no, I did not. Do it. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, right, I'm going to mute my line, I'm
42: going to mute my line.
17: Uh, Nick over the road, much obliged, sir, love neutralizing workplace racism, we talk about that in terms of what you, you know, preparing for what you want to discuss on the job stand focused on work-related activity and safety that music the I mean the metaphor music to my ears talking about safety in the workplace like oh that is spectacular I would much rather talk about that than gossiping about other employees and what this person had on and who they were sleeping with and who they're having an affair with and all the rest of it like safety safety and not arguing with other black people, making that a not competing with or arguing with other black people. Music to my ears, metaphor. The grand would appreciate that, as do I. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, Proceed.
39: I guess. May I be heard?
44: Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you.
39: Okay, sorry about that. Uh, I, I don't know if I uh, pushed the incorrect button or not, but um, I will be very brief. I just uh, have an update. Uh, I called a few weeks back during the workplace uh, racism uh, segment of your show, and I was discussing about the uh, white males in my office, uh, you know, pressuring me to go to the, uh, you know, holiday parties and their behavior and such. So, um, you know, I work for a school district and uh, we were out of um, the workplace for a while. And uh, just, uh, I think you were correct that there is uh, some obvious inappropriate, um, I guess, behaviors. Because when I came back to my office, um, you know, someone had locked the door. I opened it. And, uh, you know, on my desk, I believe, you know, I highly suspect that the uh, manager did this, but there was a box of uh, chocolate on my desk. So I just, uh, you know, pulled out the workplace racism (laughs) journal and just uh, made a little note of that, along with the uh, the other things that have been going on. But um, I just wanted to call and, uh, you know, provide that, that update. And I know... It brings me back to Dr. Wilsing, you know, and her speaking about, you know, like, you know, for Valentine's Day or for special occasions, you know, you know, it's chocolate, you know, they give, you know, it's kind of a thing. So kind of brought me, you know, back to that. But I just wanted to, you know, provide that update. I'll keep taking notes. And, you know, as more events happen, I'll call in. But I think the wisest Uh, step at this point would be to you know start um, seeking new employment but even doing that I don't know if it's a guarantee if uh, another white male uh, racist you know will do the same thing or something similar. so I just wanted to provide that update and um, thank you for the show.
17: Much obliged for the update neutralizing workplace racism each Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We're saying with those holiday parties, sometimes they can get really vindictive, right? If you don't go and they get an attitude, like we're saying, they look at you funny for the next year, you know. You didn't come to the office party, you know. You know? That's why what, that's what I say for some folks, you might have to go, hang out for 30 minutes, and then dip. That way you were there, you don't have to deal with all that, but that sort of thing, document get your journal, like you said, or your phone, whatever, write it down, Eight time, came into a locked facility, locked room, whatever you use. you have a lock office, and uh, bam, box of chocolates. Uh, Dr. Welton talked about that too, the chocolates and all that. We are close to Valentine's Day. Um, I would document, I would make sure not to eat, and I wouldn't even throw it in the trash there. That's the thing, I would probably discard uh, a waste milk facility, so you can just so oh, thank you for the chocolates. I appreciate it so much. And you know, just keep on rolling about it. You know, you have to talk about it. They probably won't come back and all the rest and, and just keep it moving. But obviously we've already talked about that tons. Not eating anything in the workplace, especially if they even seem like they already got an attitude with you about something that oh, I just wanted to make a little truce. I brought you these homemade muffins or chocolates that I picked up from the dollar store. Uh, other folks uh, who doubted if we missed you totally? Yeah, I'll be
43: heard. Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, listeners, and callers. Um, I was thinking about that segment where I think that was the uh the race soldier in the police department that had the uh the the Nazi symbol I think for white supremacy and um the people that were discussing it uh looks it looks like they were pointing out how I think the metaphor that was used was the, the white supremacy playbook, I think and was talking about how it looks like how, oh, well, this person didn't really know any better. Uh, He didn't really understand what kind of symbolism that is. Um, And I don't even think when uh, things happen to black people in that sense, I don't even think that much detail is put into it. Uh, When discussing when discussing any kind of, um, an event of racism practice against black people, because when it comes to, uh, uh, Adolf Hitler, I noticed that the Holocaust is mentioned and that tends to be focused on the, uh, people who are called Jewish or people classified as white, get a better treatment than black people do when we're mistreated. Um, I noticed that. And when it comes to the January the 6th, I did see a segment with Liz Cheney and um, well, racist suspect Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney were, I guess, pictured as they were the only people there when they had some kind of a uh, remembrance event to honor the uh, the officers that were harmed on January the 6th, I think. And they were questioning her, saying, well, hey, you know, where's the rest of your party? And they were giving a response like, well, something's wrong with the Republican Party and we need better leadership. I just think that also goes on that, um, that, I guess you could say stereotype or whatnot, where the racists are the quote unquote far right, and it's interesting like how they use those kinds of words far right, um, and they're Republican. Those are the racists, not the Democrats, and it's it tends to become more confusing. Um, down here, they have been talking about. The Rosewood anniversary, I think, 99 years. So they're, they've they been trying to uh, construct a historical museum. And they've been taking donations, it looks like, over in Archer, uh, Archer, Florida. Uh, and other than that, that's pretty much all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Gus is not
17: with the uh, museums and all these projects to commemorate black people who've been terrorized and killed. I don't know that you could erect enough structures. Just stop practicing white supremacy racism. How about that? Rosewood is important, but I mean, really. That happened Purging entire towns, cities of black people happened over 250 times. So, I mean, how many of these are we going to? And then they, they're so pitiful and trifling about it. They're going to go around and do like a bake sale to collect quarters to see if they can. Like, come on. Come on. Ron DeSantis can do better. Florida Historical Society can do better. Tim Tebow could come down there and have, have to get that knocked out in, you know, five minutes. Come on. Uh, that racial narrowing they sit there and say that it's just the uh it's just we've got bad leadership you know they use the metal we just got a few bad apples in the republican party we just need better leadership and all this will be taken care of That's same thing he made up the term racial narrowing uh other folks we missed totally We got everybody? Anybody we missed completely? Oh, oh, oh. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago? Yes, sir.
44: All right. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, Just two things. Um, uh, The clip on regards to mental health, uh, especially during the pandemic, I don't know the exact context of it, but, you know, when I was listening to it, you know, in the system of white supremacy, I mean, everybody who is non-white, uh, black, uh, has some sort of mental health issue. So uh, we all have to kind of uh, deal with it in specific ways. But, you know, one of the things is, is uh, isolation. Uh, you know, even in the pandemic, try not to be isolated, you know, from, you know, your your family members. Uh, keep in touch with them as much as you can. Uh, because, yeah, obviously all of us are suffering through some sort of mental health trauma, uh, just living uh, in this particular system. And the um, uh, the non-white uh, black man, the, uh, the Jamaican immigrant, as they call him, uh, who was killed in a hunting accident uh, with a group of white people, um, one of the things that I've always did, uh, you know, especially young folks, uh, who kind of still like to party, you know, I and I tell my children, too, do not go to any functions with a bunch of white people. And if you happen to walk into a place where you are the only black person in there, leave immediately. This is what happens when situations like, you know, uh, the, the, the non-white black male gets uh, killed in a hunting accident. He went down with a group of white people and next thing you know, he's dead. Uh, it kind of reminds me, I was just watching an episode of uh, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, which is on Netflix now. And they uh, one of the episodes talked about uh, a non-white black male uh, named Alonzo Brooks from a 2004 case. Uh, Mr. Brooks was 23 years old when he got killed. Well, no, he was, well, the thing is, is that he's, he disappeared and his body can't be found. So apparently what happened was he was living in a part of Kansas and he went to a party in a town of Kansas called Lysignia uh, with a bunch of white, white people. So apparently he went to the party. Uh, there was a bunch of white people there. He was coming with his white friends and apparently there was a bunch of nigger calling and all kind of, you know, racial slurs. Uh, you know, at him, and he nearly gets into a fight. The friends that he came down to the party with left him there, and next thing you know, uh, Mr. Brooks is gone. They can't find his body. The FBI came down, and nobody in Lasignia wants to talk. So it's basically a missing persons case. The family is like, you know, it was a racial hate crime which, you know, in in a lot of sense it obviously is. Uh, But what's also interesting is, and uh, we went over uh, James Lowen's book, uh, Sundown Towns, and he has a website of all the Sundown Towns in his uh, his book. And what is so interesting is when you go to the state of Kansas, he has almost uh, over 100 cities and counties in Kansas. Missignia is not listed. Neither is Lynn County, which is the county in Kansas that is not listed. And and also too, I checked uh, the uh, uh, the recent incident of the Jamaican immigrant who got uh, who was uh, found dead. Uh, he was killed in a township in Pennsylvania called Rockland. I looked on his website. Rockland is not listed as a sundown town. So. I thought that was uh, pretty interesting as well. Um, But that's all I have on you.
17: Much obliged. Henry in Chicago. Reading. More important than watching television. James Lowen, Sundown Town. Very important book from the book club. Not well. Yes. More important than Lucky, but Lucky important for different reasons. Um, I had never even heard of this case. I watched Unsolved Mysteries, uh, both versions. I think I've seen some of the syndicated versions, and then I've seen the Netflix one, too. Probably not all of them, but I'd never heard of the case of uh, Alonzo Brooks, White Friends, and Alcohol Sobriety would be best unsolved mysteries that has the same that's like the same era as uh surviving the game with iced tea. Same kind of feel, same kind of vibe, like uh same tragic case unfortunately. But uh much obliged for everyone's uh participation. Hope it was worthy of your Friday evening. Uh, I can only say Lucky has been a fascinating read. It is certainly not the best book. I certainly don't think reading this book will help us uh solve the problem of white supremacy racism although you can certainly use your brain computer I think Nick in the road said he did some processing and said man this seems like we got some inconsistencies in how she's described oh that's what I meant to say that's what I meant to say I I'm, so glad I'm running. man Nick over the road so uh, Vegan RD. she gets two shout outs today because she wrote in uh, about the information for Irie and her son she also wrote Listening to the book club, she said the exact same thing that Nick over the road said. The poem that I wrote is on my blog, racism notes.blogspot.com. That's in the third session of uh, Alice Sebold's Lucky, third session that we did in the book club last week. She said, How is she talking about little red balls? They wouldn't be red balls if your rapist is a black male. They would be black balls, (laughs) chocolate balls, or, you know, something, brown balls, eight balls, give me something, not red balls, unless we all just missed this, and she's not talking about testicles, but if she's talking about, you know, male genitals, she said exactly what Nick over the road, like red balls, like, wouldn't that mean your rapist is a white man? Just another one to think about, uh, Super Freak, self-described Alice Ebold, as we continue with Lucky. That was going to be a movie this year, Thursday on the Book Club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Rape and black male never goes out of season. Uh, much obliged for everyone's participation. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. What's the, the word of the day? Irie, is she still with us? Can we get the word of the day one more time before we depart?
37: Oh yeah. Um, hold on. Bill Dun Roman, B-I-L, D-U, N G S R O M A-N.
17: I'd never heard that word before, so I will have to process. I'm still learning. I'll see if it applies to lucky. It may. Let's see. We'll be so Wednesday, again, a regular time. Uh, so 3 p.m. Eastern, you're still at work or what have you. Maybe you can sneak, listen in, sneak a question. Maybe we'll be close to the time where you'll be off. You can ask a question. Uh, so 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific on Wednesday, Dr. Kevin Waite, again, they used, I think we can confirm Wednesday, they used some of his research with the reparations project that's happening in the state of California. Are they gonna give some sort of constructive resources to black people on the basis of racism that has been practiced? That's what we'll be chatting about on Wednesday. Again, he's joining us from the UK. That's why we're not on in our normal time slot. Wednesday, tune in if you're able, if you got free time in the afternoon. That said, especially given what we heard today, Irie was talking about, man, people doing all that alcohol consumption. Not only can they slip something in your drink. I worked uh, at the comedy club in Atlanta. That happened one night I was working. In fact, uh, it was a guy tried to slip something, and it was a female. He was with. slip something in her drink. He asked the server, like, can you be in collusion with me in putting this in her drink? And thank God, she was upstanding, went reported to the manager and they tossed him out. I think they should have called the police, in my opinion, but, you know, as hindsight, I guess, whatever, they kicked him out and let the girl know and blah, 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 all the rest of it. But I mean, lots of reasons sobriety would be best. In addition to being sober, if you're going to be out and about, uh, you, you should be thinking somebody's being loud and hostile, male or female, this person could be armed. In fact, this person could have an entire armed entourage. You didn't leave your residence, prepared to die and or kill, exit. Just like we heard from attempted parent, Henry in Chicago, that is brilliant. Tell your offspring, hey, you walk in, you're the only black person there, it's so all white people, exit. Alonzo Brooks, James Bird Jr., remember that one? Exact same thing. He was out with his white friends, drinking, got a ride, and that was it. In addition to being sober, exiting, thinking these folks could be armed if you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, you are not on the cell phone, We need all of our attention, and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other Black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of Black self-respect At all times, in all places, each and every time, we are in contact with another Black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. No name-calling. No gossiping. Borrow that one from Nick Over the Road. No competing with other Black people. I signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga you so brainwashed.
8: I'm a victim, no brother.
43: I'm a victim.
0: Man, I'm a victim of
6: 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>